Hi, everyone. Welcome to Office Hours. If you're watching on YouTube, you can find out more about what we do at officehours.global. Our first hour is general discussion about digital media production of all kinds. Uh, second hour is usually something we want to spend a little bit more time on. And today, uh, Gary Trenda of Sound Devices um, is uh, going to be talking to us about RF. Uh, it's something that we talk about a lot. <laughs> and, and I think that we do the best we can to answer well, but this is one of the world experts in it. So uh, so we're really excited to have Gary on. If you've got questions about RF of your wireless mics, um, specifically audio, uh, then make sure to uh, to jump on and, um, and get those questions into Makana early. Uh, I have a feeling it'll be pretty busy today. All right, let's go ahead and jump into the questions. Bill, what do we have? First one comes from TJ Asher in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and TJ asks, over the last several years, I've heard people in office hours with a, quote, shotgun mic, and some sound really good and some sound just plain awful and roomy. What could cause the difference? Go ahead, Guy. Yeah, it's really about the proximity and the, the chain. Uh, so it's the mic, the mic capsule, as well as the preamp. So if you have a noisy preamp, that could creep into the chain. But also a lot of people think that because they get one of these shotgun mics that it's going to sound great, even if it's like they see in the movies, two feet away. But a lot of those sound stages are completely quiet with the room treated. So a shotgun mic for indoors isn't really the best mic. A, a hypercardio would, like the Shep CMC641 would be what you'd see on a, on a set. Uh, the interference tube design, also if you're near... These uh, walls, interior walls, will uh, bounce the sound a little bit late, which can c cause like a warbling sound. So shotguns really aren't meant to be indoors. But really, there, there's a video I put up in the Mukana chat that sh demonstrates a, a fan in a room where we actually rotate it because these things have a tail too. So as you compress the sound down, the uh, pickup pattern, um, unlike uh, other microphones, might be like a cardioid or, a, or an omni where they, they have different patterns, uh, like a... Uh, cardioid will pick up from one side, which this is a super cardioid pattern, which is picking up just directly in front of it. But it de develops this tail, which a lot of people think, oh, turn it to the rear and you're going to reject the sound. Well, you're actually picking up that tail. And I have another video on YouTube that I'll put a, a link in where you really hear that tail pronounced as we rotate the, the mic around on a, on a uh, jib. Go ahead, Bill. Yeah, one of the things, I think that's one of the worst names we've had a shotgun mic because it, it presumes that it's going to reach out like a shotgun pattern and grab something only in front of it, not to the sides. And none of them work exactly like that. In fact, they're frequency dependent. They tend to be uh, directional at mid, upper mid and high frequencies. They're not directional at low frequencies. So if your room is not treated and you've got a lot of echo bouncing around, that's still going to hit the element of the mic and it's still going to be recorded. So you really have to understand what the pattern does and how the room affects that to get rid of that boominess. Good, Courtney. Yeah, it's been covered mostly. Yeah, if you if your room is uh, reflective, it's bad to use a shotgun mic because it achieves its its uh, directionality by the interference tube, which is the long tube with the slots cut down the side of it, and it counts on the fact that that sound is arriving. Uh, at 90 degrees and if it's uh, to, to achieve its directionality and if it's reflecting off the wall and coming in at a different angle, it, it messes up its, uh, its tuneness and it doesn't filter out uh, a lot of the reflections. So the reflections can get in through the side vents and it creates you know, a roomier sound than uh, it should than a, a non-shotgun microphone uh, or an omnidirectional microphone or a cardioid microphone placed uh, closer to the person. Mitchell? Yeah, shotgun is also a little bit of a misnomer, but um, you would think that, it again, like you were just said earlier, that it's something that has this magic ability to pull sound in. 
uh, real close. What's interesting is some years ago, Ernie Anderson, a very uh, popular voiceover guy, used to do the love boat and stuff like that, started using a Sennheiser 416 as a close-up voiceover mag- uh, microphone. And you wouldn't think that a shotgun can do that. But look at Bill. Bill right there is with that aforementioned Sennheiser 416. And it sounds just like my close talk 414 right in front of me. So uh, shotgun isn't magical in terms of where it works. If you, you can work it close, especially if it's that 416, and it'll sound just like a regular cardioid microphone. Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, I was going to mention my my 415s were working in uh, Buzzy's recording studio for about 20 years uh, now. And uh, they do work great in, in a recording studio or in a quiet room like Bill has it there and you get it close to you. So uh, they have been used as voiceover microphones quite a bit in the industry. You know, a lot of commercials and stuff are done at 416. Next question. Next one comes from Bo Cordell in Charleston, South Carolina, and Bo says ESPN recently pulled off a basketball game broadcast using a complete cloud-based end-to-end workflow. Does anyone have experience with the Simply Live suite of tools they used? And he's got a link there to them. Good guy. I looked at it a few years ago. It seemed expensive for what it was, but they recently were picked up uh, just a few months ago. They announced at IBC uh, that Riedel bought them. And I saw this article hit LinkedIn. Bo must have seen it as well. And so in the article, they talk about the the end-to-end cloud. uh, Let me pop the right uh, thing into preview program. There we go. So the slick thing about it is that um, on-site, you can have uh, replay and you can have audio mixing and then from afar, you can add commentary, graphics, uh, and you can have replay operators at home. The, the trick is this thing called the venue gateway, and the venue gateway is what allows you to have that hardware uh, transcoding in either H.264 or H.265, either via SRT or, or uh, Zixi or uh, using a, a Nimbra Edge. Uh, one of these uh, transport, depending on the security and the redundancy that you need, uh, it allow, it's the hardware that allows that physical cable to go in and then shoot it up to the cloud. And in the article, they, they talk about using uh, AWS, and they also talk about using Sienna Processing Engine. I believe that's for some kind of NDI conversion. I want to dig a little bit more into it because my job, I want to break this stuff down and see. So these things are going to be, you know, twenty, thirty thousand dollars $30,000. I try to say, how can we do this for cheaper? So Tucker and a couple of us have this little side group where we talk about things like this. So that's one of the things that we've been discussing this morning is like, how can we do this cheaper? So, you know, we do it with vMix and with Zoom. And there's a couple couple things that we pull off that are similar using um, hardware from Epifan with the nanos. That's how we get our SRT streams in. So it's just a matter of how do you want to suck your commentary, your replay. That's where these guys are winning, though, is the the uh, the replay hardware. So that's, I think, the interest from Riedel is that replayability for multiple angles from afar. Next question. Cherry Cheetah in Dallas, Texas says, we're doing a hybrid event where we want to populate a real-time map with people's locations based on a form submission. Has anyone found any tools to accomplish this? Go ahead, Mitchell. You've probably heard us talk a lot about the Talalic Traversal at the end of the show. Um, it Part of the uh, system is a globe that rotates to show where each of these questions are coming from. So I know we've done it, and I recall that he'd used Isadora to program uh, an HTML globe that uh, rotated to stop for each person's uh, geographic coordinates. Yeah, go ahead, Courtney. 
Yeah, you might look into Google Earth because they have a commercial product called Google Earth Studio that lets you do animations and rotate to specific points and zoom in. It's what uh, most of the networks use when they do demonst- you know, when they go to a location of a news event somewhere and show the uh, show the globe rotating and zooming in on a specific area. It's uh, it's available to broadcasters, and I'm not sure what the cost is, but there is a cost. Yeah, and and I think that the um, I think that. I think that what ours is doing, someone can probably jump into the chat, is um, is getting the longitude and latitude and being able to, you know, find it on a globe because ours isn't really based on Google on Google Earth. Um, but I do think I do agree with Courtney. Google Earth, if you're trying to animate a globe to it, the easiest way to do that would probably be Google Earth. Uh, there are other companies. If you're looking for just building a map that shows everybody that's 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 at the event, and we've done this in the past, both with memberships and maps, and even what I'm just trying to visualize. I had a um, about 1,500 venues. I had to figure out where they all were in the world and I had to just see it. And I, and I was looking for a map tool to do this so I could just see it across the, across the, 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 um, the globe. Uh, there's a couple, couple companies that do a fair bit of this. MapDiv, MapLine, BatchGeo. These are all things that, these are all, um, you know, online tools that will let you build those out. They have different cost structures and, and privacy structures. Uh, the one that I ended up using and the one that I've used on and off for the last 20 years for mapping is the Google Maps API. <laughs> so, so the API is very powerful. Um, there are easy ways to just dump a bunch of, you know, just literally push a CSV into it. And it'll just show a bunch of stuff, but you can customize all the things that are in there uh, via the API. So if you want to visualize that, that's probably um, the place I would start. And then I would also look again at MapDiv, MapLine, Batch, Geo, see if they have tools that, that you may uh, want, again, as a wide map. Uh, if you want to animate it to it, I'd probably use Google Earth as well. Now, next question. Andy Korkendorfer in Vieira, Florida is up next. Thoughts about using the CalDigit TS4 on an M2 Mac Pro for live Zoom and or video switching. Thanks. Yeah, I, I, I have not had a lot of great experiences with CalDigit, um, you know, related to Zoom specifically. <laughs> so uh, it's not that I, I've, I've had actually a, maybe the earlier version of what you're talking about. And I've bought them, and they've used they've worked fairly well. Um, but uh, th- with Zoom and with some of the switchers and audio, we've had some. I've had some breakup, and I think I'm not the only one that has had some uh, irregularities uh, using the, the Cal digits uh, when they get kind of uh, when they get a little too much data going through them. Uh, I would probably recommend looking at OWC. Um, they make things that are very similar, and uh, we've had a lot less uh, anomalies. Next question. Next question from it comes from Clive Kirchner in Suit, British Columbia. How do you deal with the dust in the rat's nest of wires and cables, either behind your monitors or on the flow, a floor? Any special DIY vacuum adapters? Kids' chores for allowance? Uh, wear a mask and carry on? Hire help and leave the house? <laughs> yeah, go, Tom. Well, I live in Phoenix, so I know about dust. I use a Dyson stick vacuum. Uh, that gets out most of the large dust bunnies. When dusting around the equipment, I use microfiber cloths. Never, ever use compressed air. And for a final touch-up, I can always build up a static charge on Merlin and run him past underneath. <laughs> Go ahead, Archie. <laughs> well, uh, for dust in general, I do have a electric duster that I use. So I know that the dust will get around. Um, it's called EXPOR, I think, on Amazon. But if you type in electric dusters, I just looked it up, and there are a few that have a 
a compressed air kind of thing and a vacuum, so kind of a three-in-one uh, setup. Um, this usually works really well for keyboard cleaning or anything like that. So if you have a specific little area and you want to just put like newspaper down on the floor and then just dust your little area off, the only thing you got left to do would be vacuum around your floor and it'll pick it all up. And the uh, there's two 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 speeds on it. Hey, go ahead, Bill. I this is a little expensive, but it's what I did. I had a circumstance once where there was a complex thing. It wasn't wires, but it was similar, and it had a lot of dust on it. And so I used a two-stage system. I took my shop vac and I put it on the side, put it on high, and had an in uh, a vacuum there. Mm -hmm. And then I took a compressed air uh, trigger thing and blew off some of the dust. If you just use compressed air, all you're going to do is aerosolize all the dust into your environment. But if you put a negative pressure vacuum at the same time, you can get most of that out after you knock it off, whatever it's in. So that's the, the process I used. There you go, Jeffrey, real quick. The smaller the nozzle, the better, of course. And uh, but uh, a little trick: if you don't, if you have something high powered that you need to vacuum with, uh, you can take a piece of pantyhose and then you kind of wedge it in between the nozzle that you're using and the hose itself. And that way, when the cord comes up, it's not going to suck all the way into the uh, into the vacuum. Good, uh, Courtney. Yeah, for the dusty rat's nest, I use uh, dust-eating rats because they work very good. <laughs> and failing that, I do use a leaf blower and put on my COVID mask, blow it all out from behind there, and then vacuum the room after that. Next question. Next question comes from Chad Lafarge in Columbia, Missouri. Macworld is reporting that devices with M2 are using a single NAND chip in SSD versus two for the M1, slowing performance by up to 50%. Have you seen that performance drop? And it's got a link there to the article noting this. Yeah, I just bought, I mean, literally I have a box over here that's the new M2 <laughs> that's there, um, That that and it's got 256. I didn't do anything special to it. I just wanted something that acts as glue. If you're buying a 256 gig, I would argue that you're probably not expecting it to have really fast drive speed. I mean, these drive speeds are already pretty fast as it is. Uh, and uh, I, you know, at 256, I'm only going to be able to put system architect, you know, basically the apps on on the computer. And that's all I need for what I'm doing with this, uh, this M2. That's all I need. So I think that um, I think that that's what Apple assumed is that you're probably not doing high performance work if you're getting a 256 gig, gig drive. And um, so I think you're probably, um, you know, it is there, but I don't think that most people are going to notice because that's not how the person who buys the M2 256 is using the, the the Mac Mini. And if they do use it that way, then <laughs> they might be misguided. Uh, next question. Next one comes to us again from Andy Kokendorfer in Vieira, Florida. Client wants glass panels for light transmission, but this creates a sound reflective surface. Is there such a thing as sound treated glass? Good, Courtney. Not for reflectivity. For sound transmission, there is. There's dual pane glass, or you could put up two panes of glass to isolate the sound from one room into the other. But it's still going to be reflective if you can see through it. So, because uh, if you treat the surface of it, one thing you can do is mount it at an angle. So make sure it's not perfectly parallel to the opposing walls. Or if you have two glass walls, make sure they're not perfectly parallel. Tilt one of them down a little bit, or tilt both of them down a little bit, or one down and one up, uh, to achieve uh, to get rid of the standing wave between the two of them. In a larger room, um, the uh, we I saw there's a thicker, a slightly thicker matte uh, surface that can be put on the on the windows. That doesn't, it definitely cuts down on the transmission. It doesn't look like you can look through the windows. But if you're looking for light, um, there are there's a surface that's kind of again, it's like that matte finish, but it's thick. Um, and it's coming I mean, like velvety kind of thick. And we've seen these put on uh, event windows and. 
they don't really pick up any kind of the low end reflection and that, and they still ha- are a little problematic, but they take out a lot of the really high end, um, you know, kind of re- reflection from the, from the windows. It made, it made a much bigger difference than I expected. <laughs> you know, like to put that on there. Again, it's, it's only if you're using those windows for transmission because it is kind of like an opal once, once they're put on. It's there to let that light in. It also creates some privacy. So there's a couple of different things that they do. So you might want to look for that as well. Next question. TJ Asher, Minneapolis. My ATEM software control suddenly no longer sees my ATEM Mini Pro. It worked a couple of weeks ago. No OS updates since then. Static IP on the ATEM and connected to the network. Setup app sees it. Software version is 8.9. The Mac OS version is 12.6.2. Any ideas? Go, Jeffrey. I see this problem a lot when you're switching networks. I know this is not the case, but it's it's if your IPs are changing at all then the software kind of gets hung up on there. Uh, and uh, I would turn off the, on your Mac, I'd turn off the wireless so you only have one source coming in. And also check your Ethernet cables because I've had it, a bad Ethernet cable causes this problem as well. Yeah, and I would also be curious as to whether it works when you connect it over USB. So if you connect it over USB-C, does it show up? You know, and if it does, then obviously there's something going on with the way the network works. But I'd be curious. I would The first thing I would do is do it. I have had an issue where my ATEM Mini Pro would not connect over the Ethernet. I plugged it into USB-C, saw it, ran it, and then unplugged the USB-C again, plugged in the Ethernet, and it worked fine. <laughs> like, there was some kind of uh, you know handshake thing that wasn't going on. So you may want to try to do a direct connect and see if that works. Um, go ahead, Guy. Uh, Courtney? Yeah, if you have a switch in between the two and you're only using Ethernet to connect the two and you're not using uh, USB, uh, make sure your switch hasn't rebooted or something because it can lose its... Uh, it's routing, especially if it has a static IP address, it can lose its routing table. And so check that. You might have to reboot your switcher if yeah, and, it's got a switch in between the and and you yeah, and it, it, something else could be using that IP as well. And and you could you could um just let it sit on DHCP. The on the same network, the ATEM doesn't need you to know what the IP is. It'll find every other ATEM on the network without uh, in that in that little uh, connect list. So you might want to just set your in the setup because the setup can see it. Go ahead and set a DHCP and let it and let it roam and then see if it if you can see it as well. Next question. Andy Kokendorfer's back from Vieira, Florida. Has anyone watched the Tony Robbins event? If so, any interesting techniques or tech in use? Good guy. Yeah, I tuned into a little bit of it yesterday. It looks like the same kind of setup that they had previously, which is uh, uh, Tony's home in, in Florida, which this uh, monster TV is probably a 90-inch or something crazy like that. They've got a UE-150, two UE-150s. You could see them uh, here uh, in front. And so when he's looking at the camera, he's actually looking at out of this 9-up. So this is a, a probably a decimator uh, that's creating this 9-up multi-view out of one large monitor. So UE150 here, UE150 here, script or uh, prompter essentially down the middle, chat off to the right side here. And then just throughout the, the thing, you know, he's looking into it. He's watching the people in Zoom. He's looking at the chat. Um, he's able to call out people. They're able to take those people full screen. So there's, you know, an operator. He's, he's pointing at people. He's got... Uh, you know, the ability to have the back-end crew take what any of those people that he wants because they've labeled these these breakout rooms and they're able to assign those and, and pull them up. And then standard issue, uh, two-up boxes with um, PowerPoint, and he just goes through his spiel. And I put a link in the chat to the... Uh, this, is, unfortunately, is the uh, Spanish version that uh, he left up on YouTube, but I have another one of you DM me. I can get you the, uh, the U.S. version. 
And that's a and and what's the model? Is it he's charging for that, right? It's a this one's completely free. Oh, interesting. Very interesting. And um, and do you know how many people attended? He says up to a million. So I don't know if that's true, but that's the numbers that he's reporting. Wow, that's uh, super interesting. And it's super interesting that he did it for up, up to a million without anybody in the audience. Hmm. Hmm. Mm. Very interesting. Hmm. <laughs> so so anyway, uh, yeah. Hmm. Uh, go ahead, Courtney. Are there operators on those PTCs, Guy, or are they just set it to track his team? I'm sure. I'm sure there's a big crew. Yeah, I'm sure there's a big crew behind in that. Uh, from the previous one that I saw, there was a massive crew on this. It's not just a little thing. It's a massive crew. Even in his home, it's, it's 20 people there. So it's, it's not a little thing. And then there's, of course, people like Grant or somebody like him managing those breakout rooms and spooling them all up. Because, yeah, they feed it into multiple, uh, I believe it's... Uh, max and then a constellation and they're able to pull any of those rooms and any of those people so they'll say like uh room 22 uh pull julie and then they'll take julie full screen and now that's decimated and they can suck it into the constellation and pull off that that uh, super source yeah it's pretty it's the future we we all talked about the fact that we were going to start seeing shows for a million with a million people <laughs> i just didn't expect it to happen quite so quickly so um but you know we'll we'll see if it if, if you actually got to that it's a huge it's a great funnel though of cre- creating something that's free um that's going to just go out to everyone and then of course he's gonna there'll be new courses that are 300 bucks or 500 bucks or whatever that you can do over you know zoom that are more private um it's interesting. I'd be interesting to think of the thought process there because, you know, I know that he, you know, he was doing things that were really big on these big uh, circular uh, pieces. And then he went to kind of some weird hybrid and um, now he's doing it at his home. <laughs> so it's an interesting uh, progression uh, of, of, of that process. Uh, next question. Jack Rupel in Breckenridge, Colorado uh, says using Apple's spatial audio is uh, to possible to provide, is it possible to provide separate audio feeds depending on head positioning, i.e. French, German, English, uh, diegetic, non-diegetic, and leitmotif, commentary, director, sound, sound designer, director of photography? I, I don't know if I fully understand um, the 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 head positioning um it so there's a there's some tracking that already exists inside of the headset so if you have the spatial on and you have the head tracking on and you have an apple you know headset you know of some kind uh, you're gonna if you move you're gonna hear it it's gonna stay stationary to where you're at which actually kind of drives me crazy (laughs) so i don't i don't i don't actually like that feature at all like i thought i did and i used to use it when i tested because i did a lot of hdr stuff or or, or hdr and, and spatial so i would go like this and I would know it was activated by swinging my head around, so that that helped. Um, but I I don't really enjoy that that much now. The um, I don't know how the languaging, um, you know, whether you could turn one way or the other. One thing that a bunch of us are talking about right now, and we're going to be doing some testing in the in the spring, is using the surround. So in a mostly talky, so we can give you you know deliver of course Atmos to your and and what Atmos means mostly when you're delivering to a live event is you're going to deliver a bunch of channels. Uh, you're not really delivering true Atmos because the pipelines for Atmos and Vision are pretty difficult to manage inside of a standard pipeline to go through it. So you're delivering raw channels and that can be, you know, five channels, but typically we would deliver 16 channels um, to the, you know, um, you know, or, or maybe 16, maybe 12 or 10, but we'll deliver those channels to it. The encoder then, uh, you, typically an elemental encoder, will take those channels and then reconvert them to an Atmos space and define them as Atmos. They has to tag them as Atmos. 
then when it comes out the other end, um, you have you have those channels where they needed to be. Um, in that in that area, uh, what you want to do is um, what we're looking at doing is when you're doing a talk, someone just talking to you like Tony Robbins, they're coming through the center channel. Like they're not you're not sending them through stereo. You're not having them jump around. Typically, we've been playing with the idea of putting translations in the one or two translations or other information in the surrounds because we're like you know we we got this idea because i was doing something at the <laughs> i was doing something where someone has to lean over and translate for the for the guest or for the host all the time or the or the primary host and i kind of was like well someone just kind of whispering in her ear what could we recreate that you know to the side and uh, so that's one of the ways we might be able to use that surround um to add other languages um to that uh, to that model. And what's nice about that is you get to hear the person, you get to hear the expression that they have, but then you also get to hear what they said without having to look at um, look at text. So I, I think it could be an interesting thing. Go ahead, Courtney. An interesting adjunct to what you described there, Alex, would be to program the other way too, to use it for comms for people that are, aren't on camera so that you could hear like, uh, you know, the uh, audio guys off to the left and the uh, TD is off to the right. So you could say, so, hey, Mickey, uh, turn it up a little bit. Hey, Chad, uh, put, you know, ready for camera two. And so you could turn left and right without having to operate uh, uh, individual comm controls to talk to individual people. So you could key the transmission to the head position. Yeah, the because the, I know that a lot of um, folks, a lot of engineers, when I say a lot, you know, Brian Maddox. <laughs> I work with him a lot. Brian, I know Brian uh, pans a lot of the stuff that he does in his in his headphones, so that he knows who's clients and who's not. And it doesn't; it's not quite as advanced as what you're talking about, but it really helps him figure out knowing where things are um, when you know who's who based on their position in his headset. Now, go ahead, Bill. Yeah, I was thinking exactly like Courtney was, and it seemed odd to me to be able to go, you know, the tech director I talked to over here and the actual director I talked to over here. But I would think if I'm talking to the director and a sound comes over there and I move over, it might cut off speech. I think it would be something you have to get used to, but it's an interesting concept, switching by body position. Yeah. Next question. Next one comes from David Brady in New York City. He says, dug up a Blackmagic Drive Ultra Studio 4K Extreme, but it appears to be bricked. The display simply flickers. Is it worth trying to revive or should I e-waste it? Go ahead, Mitchell. Of course, it's worth trying to revive. There's some things you can do that are simple, uh, some things you do that are complicated. But the simplest thing is to um, uh, hit the, uh, the reset button that takes it back to factory defaults. And I think it's a button combination. I know that my Mini Extreme can do that. The other is to try to uh, reinstall the, uh, uh, the ROM software, uh, which is basically a firmware update, and see if that affects it. And the third thing you can do is just mail it to me. <laughs> there, he'll, he'll work on it for you. Uh, he'll he'll uh, you just just Mitchell can be your e waste uh, provider, and then you can just send it to him, and he'll bang on it and see what happens. Yeah, yeah. Flashing the firmware or trying to update it might be the might be one way to see if it comes back. Uh, in general, that kind of thing is going to be old enough that uh, that it probably isn't worth trying to update it. It'll probably cost more than just replacing it. Uh, go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, one thing, if it's flickering, you might want to check the uh, frequency of the uh, crystal uh, that is on. It's driving everything in there. It could be it got knocked or is off frequency or broken. Uh, so check that, and uh, that might be your solution. And my, my major use of, e of eBay, by the way, is getting rid of e-waste because there's a lot of people that will buy something that you tell them flat out it doesn't work, um, but you make it 25 bucks or 10 bucks or 15 bucks, and you'd be surprised at how many 
plus shipping or whatever. <laughs> You'd be surprised how many people just go, yes, I'll take that. And they, they feel op- more optimistic than I do about fixing it. Um, next question. Paul Wallace, Austin, Texas says, is Blackmagic DaVinci editor good at rendering all formats? How does it compare in this department to other editors? I go ahead, Mitchell. Wow, they kind of range the uh, uh, the whole gamut. I mean, Avid's probably the worst. Uh, Blackmagic might be second, and then you get Premiere and uh, Final Cut. Um, most of the stuff will do an, a mezzanine format, which is a good place to be rendering to, because then you don't have to worry down the road. Um, so uh, if you're talking about rendering the output, uh, do it to a mezzanine format like ProRes, and then you can use uh, compressor or media uh, ed- edit to... Uh, encoder, excuse me, uh, to create whatever you, the client wants to ultimately set out in. Yeah, go ahead, Bill. Yeah, sadly, nothing does everything. I do a lot of broadcast delivery, and when I have to do that, there are a couple of stations that are really difficult, and I've had to roll my own specific encoding things using a couple of tools to get things out to those station specs. Uh, it depends on what they've licensed, what the company manufacturing software has licensed to put inside their programs, because most of those codecs are controlled by third parties. I only export out of uh, Resolve at the highest resolution that I that I that I think is worth having. So it's HQ or or something else that's that's you know, potentially higher than that. Um, and then I use compressor to turn it into any other formats that I want. Um, I don't try to, and I do the same thing with Final Cut. <laughs> like I, you're, I, 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 you're I, I, talking I, ProRes, right? Well, or anything that I want to output. I you know I I mean generally, I would say ninety nine percent of the time, client my clients want to be delivered footage in ProRes. You know, so like that is the that is the you know the the most standard. Uh we hear DNX every once in a while, but like literally once a year. And then outside of that it's it's ProRes that they want delivered. Um so so the um uh so we you know I export it out of res- my editor, whatever editor I'm using, I export at the highest resolution. Then I use a compressor to make it you know to break it out into all the other versions that I want to do it in. That way also if the compression crashes I already have <laughs> I have the original, and it's much faster to do that than to go back and, and pull the edit out. So I would highly recommend not using the editor to compress if you don't have to. Go ahead, Bill. Yeah, I was going to say, most of the time, the broadcasters are all pretty easy. I have two or three settings for them, and one of them usually works. It's the OTT deliveries over the top. Like if you're sending out the Hulu or something like that, you can get into the weeds and some very uh, specific things. Nine, I, I agree with Alex. 99% of the time... Um, Compressor will take care of it, although on some of them, I have to output a format uh, and then just change the extension from MP4 from M4V to MP4 so that their machines will understand it on that side. It is still a little bit of a goofy black art delivery. Yeah, you can, for some of those special formats, um, usually they're not very high quality formats if you have to specialize it. So uh, things like Handbrake can um, make fix that. Handbrake is basically a graphical interface for uh ffmpeg <laughs> so so uh, which you can also just script you can literally uh just draw i mean just just type out a command that has all the data that you need in ffmpeg in a command line and then just push it through that way as well next question jack rupel again from breckenridge colorado uh anybody on the panel have audio experience with acoustic emissions i'm interested in embedding uh after effects audio data into a usdz file to visualize the avalanche pro uh, yeah, I, I don't think I have a lot of reference to a lot of the, you know, like the USDZ I recognize, Avalanche Pro I do, do I haven't used. Um, 
and acoustic emissions. I'm, you know, I, I'm assuming that when you're talking about, um, yeah, yeah, I don't, uh, yeah, I might have read that wrong. Is I think I said After Effects audio data, but I wonder if it's AES audio data or something like that. No, I think acoustic emissions audio data. Oh, okay. Into Thank a USDZ you. file to visualize the Avalanche Pro, um, and and I think that there's just a bunch of connections there. I'd love to find out more about what Jack's trying to solve, um, but uh, um, I because I have a feeling it's I have a feeling it's really cool. <laughs> I don't know. I have a feeling it has to do with avalanches. Um, yeah, come so, for hours. Talk, so yeah, talk yeah. Well, or 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 just ask us some more questions. I'm I'm I I think that I uh, yeah I'm really interested to to understand what you're trying to do there. Um, so yeah, please please ask more questions or jump into after hours or just ask more questions here. We'd love to find out more about what you're doing. It looks really interesting, especially because you're in Breckenridge. I'm assuming that it's avalanches and snow and <laughs> and uh, so uh, yeah. So I think that'd be cool. All right, next question. Scott Mueller, Germantown, New York. My Dante periodically goes silent and then comes back 30 seconds later, occasionally, using DVS on several computers with an X32. Where should I look to resolve the issue? Good, Courtney. You might look and see if you have a switch in the line in your network there, if they're not all on the same route or if you have a switch involved. Um, they always recommend that you use a gigabit or better switch. It's managed switch with non-blocking and make sure that the uh, you have disabled the energy efficient Ethernet or triple E, which tends to uh, shut down portions or legs of the Ethernet uh, to save power. You want to make sure that's all turned off. Uh, it sounds like a timing issue, but since you have an X32 with a Dante card in it, I assume it's providing the sync to the uh, the virtual sound cards. Uh, so I'd look into your Ethernet switch or if you have anything on the Ethernet that is a switch that's routing things, that that may be where your problem exists. Go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, um, I agree with what Courtney said there. Um, the only thing is that I last I heard, Dante will not work on a switch over a one gigabyte switch, like a 10 gig switch. It's not going to work. A dedicated uh, switch for the Dante is recommended. And if you're having uh, occasional problems like that, try changing the leader, which is the main sync. Uh, to a different device and see if uh, it acts any better. 99% chance it's the eco setting inside the switch. <laughs> the eco settings are the first thing you do. Even if I don't even know how I'm going to use the Dante network, the first thing I do when I get a switch is to go into the controls. If there is any kind of managed switch or managed router, I go into the controls and I just turn off all the eco settings. Like that is, eco settings make a lot of sense if you're a large corporation and you have thousands of these and you want it to you know, go up and down. So it's not that there shouldn't be eco settings in the switches. I just think that they should be turned off, <laughs> you know, by default. Um, and I turn them off by default. So I will go into that switch and turn them off almost immediately. If As soon as I buy one, if, if it has any kind of management, I turn it off um, to make sure that if I ever decide to use Dante with it, I don't have dropouts. Um, but that's something that's, you know, been a problem for a long time. Next question. Mitchell Patria in Poland says, is there a device inventory tool using the a phone camera? I'm thinking about QR codes on, for example, the cameras that could be scanned. And in this way, before you leave an event, you scan them and then you get a list of equipment that leaves the warehouse. So I don't know. There are some, there are some products. Most of the product, the inventory products are pretty expensive. We use FileMaker <laughs> when, when I was in. So uh, we actually built a FileMaker database of all of our equipment when I had a big, big house full of stuff. And we put Q, exactly what you're talking about. We put QR codes on it just to make sure that someone, ha if, if you're having trouble. Back then, the, the phones weren't great at QR codes when we built it. So, um, but yeah, FileMaker is what we use to manage that. Um, but there are some, some larger 
uh, rental inventory is what you're really looking for. That's the, those are the companies that that uh, rental inventory systems are are going to be that. It's, they're usually pretty pricey because they're kind of specialized. Um, if you don't want to build your own in FileMaker, go ahead, Bill. Plus one on file FileMaker. That's what I would use too. It's going to take a little bit of time to develop the application because catching the QR code and turning it into some sort of data is easy. All the phones do it now, but taking that data and having it drive an inventory system on the back end is going to require some programming and linking. And it's not that hard, but you have to do it. FileMaker is a good good source for that. Next question. Uh, Cami Weinsvig in Redondo Beach says, I'm looking for a tool that can take an image and pre-generate a set of images at various sizes and or resolutions and ideally aspect ratios for use on responsive websites. I go ahead, Mitchell. Photoshop is the king of image manipulation, and you could probably create a macro to uh, do the different versions you might need from one file. Yeah, go ahead, Bill. I used to do that with Automator uh, on the Mac. Now, Automator is kind of sort of deprecated-ish, and I say that because it was a, a, a serious tool for a long time. Uh, the guy, Sal, who who kind of headed that, left Apple maybe a decade ago. It still functions, but I think a lot of that is going into shortcuts. So there may be a way in shortcuts to, to create something that will uh, take one image and turn it into a set of image. You might want to explore that. Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, I'm trying to remember. Uh, Adobe makes a product specifically for preparing web, uh, you know, web graphics. I think it's called Image Ready. I don't know if they still make it, but you might look into that. It's designed to use web-safe colors and resize and rechange aspect ratio and crop them, uh, prepare them at, uh, to make a most efficient uh, JPEG that you can put in the web or PNG. And to date myself, uh, what you really need is Equilibrium's Debabilizer. <laughs> 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 Everybody that laughed remembers the Babelizer. We use the Babelizer yeah. for this kind of thing all the time. Uh, but yeah, I think that Photoshop could probably do it for you. Next question. Next one comes from David. Oh, I'm sorry. Chris Widener in Lafayette, Indiana. Chris says, has anyone used the LaserCube Wi-Fi by Wicked Lasers for use with building displays instead of Gobos? They're a new 7.5 watt fixture, I guess. Looks interesting. It looks cool. I mean, I, you know, I want to know more. But I haven't. I haven't used it. I don't think anybody here has used them. But they are uh, a little pricey uh, twenty uh, twenty two hundred uh, three thousand bucks. Um, so uh, so they they do have. I would expect a lot of performance out of that. Go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, I don't have experience with it, but seven point five watts in the laser world is a lot of power. Yeah, yeah. So um, anyway, yeah, it's, it's uh, it looks like a looks like a cool little thing to check out. Uh, next question. David Brady in New York City up again and trying to leverage the shocks open comms and route those via loopback pairing to the Mac in stereo. But when I bring it into loopback, the patch as a patch, it only presents the left channel. Any thoughts as to why? Uh, I think that I would try to make sure. Hmm. I guess the question is, is that. Well, and you go get Tom. Uh, if you're talking about the microphone, yeah, it's only a left channel and you can then split it out and loop back and make it mono. Yeah, yeah, because I'm not sure if you're trying to send it back to yourself as stereo. I'm assuming that what you're trying to do is get it back to yourself as stereo. So you have other things that you're trying to send to it in stereo and it's only giving you the left channel. I would assume that. Otherwise, Tom's right. If it's a microphone, it's only one mic. I'm trying to figure that out. Yeah, go ahead, Bill. 
Well, couldn't you take the single left channel coming into loopback and then just loop back it to two, a right and a left well, for an output think, if you want to solve it? I think the intention is to hear stereo. <laughs> to, uh, to actually hear so stereo. you got a mono source. Yeah, you can yeah, fake yeah. stereo. So, 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 you know, you want a stereo source going back to the stereo. So it sounds like it's only presenting it when you, for the ears, I would assume, uh, making it only available. Because if it's, if it's the mic, then we know why, because there's only one mic. Um, you know, it's an interesting problem. I have to visualize. I have, I have them here, but I just haven't. I don't have time to put them together. You know, we'll take a look at that. Now, next question. Next question comes to us from Kenny Hampton in Greenville, Illinois. Many film releases to TV and made-for-streaming movie series appear dark when sent to a modem flat panel, a modern, excuse me, flat panel display. Night and indoor scenes are often dark with little visible detail. Why? And do the creators plan for consumer TVs when editing? Good, Mitchell. Well, when they output a, a film, they're they're dealing with a wide gamut of uh, different types of monitors, whether they're OLED, micro LED, or crystal LED. There's so many different uh, you know flavors out there. For the most part, I think that they uh, they push the blacks a little bit just because it looks better, and especially in a consumer uh, uh, situation. Rec. Seven Hundred Nine would be the the standard, or Twenty Twenty, um, provided the monitor is also set up with that. Then you would have a translation, but uh, it's all over the place. Good, Courtney. Oh, can't hear you. Sorry, I was typing, and my mouse was in another universe. Um, yeah, modern-day TVs, check the setting that your TV is in, because modern-day TVs, I know in my new Samsung QLED, there are like seven different modes you can put it in, if not more. And some of them are designed for HDR, some of them are optimized, will change the uh, frame rate, uh, will uh, inter interpolate, and others will uh, change the contrast ratio, which is probably what you're running into to give you those really bright local dimming modes. Uh, and that can uh, reduce the contrast uh, and you lose detail in the shadows. Uh, or you can put it in filmmaker mode. Look and see if your, your TV has a filmmaker mode um, or a film mode, 24 frame mode. And a lot of times that will remove all of the uh, digital manipulation that the monitor is doing to the signal and get you uh, strictly what the uh, filmmaker wanted its uh, image to look like on your TV monitor. Yeah, and and most modern most TVs made in the last couple of years will allow you to go into either cinematic mode or filmmaker mode, and that usually you're going to find is a much lower contrast um, in much, and it kind of does less to the image. Uh, dynamic, standard, gaming, uh, all those ones are uh, tend to um, basically take your image and squash it, you know, or stretch it out, and that blows out all your blacks. So that definitely is something to take a look at. Next question. Scott Mueller in Germantown, New York. Up next, what do I need to create a VPN between two remote computers to house companion to use companion remotely without interfering with the general internet at the venue? Well, I don't. I mean, it, it, you're going to interfere with it some because you're using some of the bandwidth. <laughs> but but I think that uh, you know those kind of VPNs. Uh, and I don't know, guy. Do you know if the companion will will it work over VPN? It will, will Yeah. It? Yeah, yeah so. you need a Jonas is what you need. <laughs> he offers consulting services. Uh, Tucker, they use OpenVPN, I believe. It, it's a fee-based um, mm -hmm. system. And then, yeah, you, you set it up. But we use AWS. And so uh, he set them up for me uh, so that my stream deck just basically talks to our instances. But it was through OpenVPN. Is, I mean, you could probably do it yourself if you can figure it out. But 
when he was setting it up, uh, it, he was trying to explain it to me, and it was over my head. So it's it's pretty deep stuff. Yeah, my expensive but uh, turnkey solution is Meraki's because they they're expensive because you're paying a membership for them, and you're paying for them. So I'm not going to say that they're the cheap solution, but they just kind of work. And so they, you know, so we we've been using them for over a decade. Now go ahead, Jeffrey. The only thing that I'll add to that is uh, that you might want to, of course, definitely check with the venue, make sure that they haven't tied it down so you can or cannot use VPN in the in certain situations. Yeah, you got some click in there. Um, next question. Douglas Carmichael's up next. He says, the modeling in the quarterback's tonight shot was incredible. How would they build the composition and how would they tailor the lighting and or textures? Would it all be done in the Unreal Engine editor? Yeah, so I think that for the most part, that's all built in, um, you know, it's probably built in, I think we talked about it yesterday, but Cinema 4D. Um, and then, you know, this most likely motion capture uh, going to the characters. There's probably not much interactive lighting with the stadium. Uh, they, they, I'm sure they made it just kind of look as nice as it could. If they really wanted to get into it, they might take a spherical of the stadium or a spherical. You could even literally, if you wanted to use it, uh, I, I don't think that they did this, but... Uh, if I wanted to do that, I would probably run out <laughs> you know, during halftime and take a, a theta shot. You'd get a, all the lights and everything else, and then you could just map it back on as a reflection map. Um, so that that would be a way to kind of grab onto it and make it feel a little bit more like it's there. But I don't think that they did any of those things. I think they just made it look relatively good in the test plates. Um, so I don't think that there was, a, you know, the lighting, I'm sure the lighting was, a lot of it was kind of finished in in Unreal or whatever, uh, the platform is that they're using there, um, probably some variant of Unreal uh, to make that actually work. And and so, yeah, so I think that that's most likely, but I don't think there's a lot of interactive um, lighting that's actually interacting with the background that's, that's there. Um, next question. Next question. Uh, Eric Billings in Washington, D.C. is curious about the big fire in the chip factory. Has the panel been following the DAC recovery process from the AKM fire? Are new chips being produced or are platforms being redesigned for older existing chips? Mitchell. Eric, I think your uh, last uh, supposition is correct. I think a lot of devices have been redesigned based on the availability of uh, digital audio chips and such. Uh, the other thing is that uh, they're, they're busy building those factories. And even here in the United States, I think legislation was just passed to allow this type of uh, construction to happen here. But we're years and years away from being able to supply that. So in the meantime, what are people doing? I think you already answered your own question there. Yeah, most people are are trying to design around it, but we we just heard like uh, there's a rumor that we'll never see any more QL ones, <laughs> like you know, like that that they are there's you know that they're not that they're you know end of life in it because they just can't redesign that to make that to make that actually work. So um, it's a it's a pretty problematic thing that that's happened there. Um, you know, that's it, I do think that a lot of things that happened over COVID, and this is not a COVID issue. This was a fire issue, has really re had people rethink what what they the global pipeline because we've had this issue before you know the reason h you know the uh the reason sr tapes disappeared you know from the market this is the sony sr tapes is because both tape manufacturing manufacturing machines for one week are in the same place at the same time and when the earthquake in japan hit it, it broke it killed both of them and the expense of reproducing it near the end of their life anyway just had everything just disappear you know and uh and and what happened was it wasn't there everyone was panicking their pain they went, you know, paying incredible amounts. An SR tape would typically cost like $100 and they were paying $1,000, $1,500. I was digging through trying to find my SR tapes uh, to do that. Um, but then they all moved to solid state and everything else around it because it was it was a real 
a real issue. And so these kind of things happen. We've seen that happen with um, floods in uh, in the area where they make all the hard drives. So it, even though it's global, it's not really distributed because the the capital investment required to build a factory is so high. If someone's already doing it very efficiently and there's not and it's commoditized, it, it's very hard to competitively invest hundreds of millions of dollars or tens of millions of dollars into a factory when you're only going to make, you know, um, 5% on every piece. Uh, yeah, go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, they have, re- AKM has resumed production, but they've, uh, are producing under the velvet sound, uh, moniker now, and they may have changed the, the chip packaging. So if that's the case, then if you've got older designs with board layouts that, that to work with the old chip packaging, it may not work with the new ones. So they will have to do a board redesign, but they, they are shipping again, Dax, uh, from, uh, AKM. So the pipeline will be full again, but it may be with a different chip. Which is a massive issue for people manufacturing hardware. <laughs> Go ahead, Guy. Yeah, I will say that I was surprised the other day to see uh, the Mixpre 3s uh, that we had ordered almost a year ago just came into the stock. So we have 10 of those. So that tells me that they got them from there because that was one of the big holdups. So we have 10, well, less than 10 now once we filled some of the back orders. But yeah, they're shipping. They'll be all gone by the end of the week. Now the now the guy said it said it yeah. here. <laughs> <laughs> Hurry, right. folks. Yeah, exactly. Uh, next question. Douglas Carmichael's up next. The Tony Robbins setup looks very interesting. Could you conceivably use NDI or use an NDI Zoom ISO and VMix approach to take the constellation out of the loop at that scale? I think it'd be pretty hard, actually. You know, so we're talking about an immense amount of signals and bandwidth. Uh, this is where copper seems inefficient, but it actually is moving a lot of content uh, relatively easily. I don't think that NDI would be the right solution, you know, for this. And when you're putting out tons and tons of outputs, NDI is not as efficient as SDI to take it out of the out of the nodes. And so, so I don't think that I don't think that they would replace this um, right now. Um, of course, there's a lot going on in the cloud um, to make all of that stuff work and to build all these rooms. And so, um, but but I and there's probably some NDI in, in that environment, but. But once you need to supply, you know, tens or hundreds of, of signals, uh, you know, the baseband copper is pretty useful. Next question. Edward R. Ruin, Ruiz in Chicago was wondering if it's possible to connect two stream decks remotely using the native software, perhaps using Parsec to connect both computers. I think it would, I, I think we would have to define what you mean by connecting them. Like how, how tight is that, um, connection to to that and i think that's also what um using the native software i think that that would be tricky um to to connect those together um uh, you know if you're using companion or something else like that it might you know there's a lot it's a little bit more abstracted but if i think with the the native software is pretty sensitive to a lot of those things so i i you'd really have to test it yeah i'm not sure next question Sarah Doyle in Falls Church, Virginia. Anyone have experience getting their business an ISO 27001 certification? What's the process like and is it worth it? Yeah. And so I, I think that a lot of times this, you know, these types of, um, you know, certification is, uh, I, I believe this is really data management. Um, so data management certification um, and, you know, knowing that you're going to know where all the data is. If you'll see, you'll know when it's worth it when you're applying for, uh, you know, when you're when you're taking, um, uh, you know, when you're looking at an application that you have to, you know, call for a call for, you know, um, uh, and you're um, 
it said it'll just say you know ISO twenty you know twenty seven zero zero one required. Um, that means that they don't want to think about it; they just want you to do it. Yeah, go ahead, Bill. Well, this this goes back to the uh, is are those certifications worthwhile? I and my opinion has been, and I've expressed it here before. I, it's not that somebody's going to ask you if you're certified often, but for me at least, going through certification has caused me to go down a path of specific study and testing myself. I get the certification, not because anybody cares about it, but because I want to know I went through all the specific modules of the software in order to be tested on it later. And that means I'm going to have a broader scale of knowledge about that thing. I consider it something I do for myself, not something I do for the industry. Well, so that that causes me to kind of like certifications if you're in a specific niche like this. Yeah, and I've done we we have been in the past certified for for this uh, standard because this is a cyber you know resiliency against cyber attacks and a managed framework uh, secure secured information and so on and so forth and so you have to get certified for these things um, and uh, it's just the only way to get the bid you know usually when this specific standard pops up it means somebody has just said well I'm going to check this off and they they have to be certified to do this um, or we're not going to. Uh, we're not going to hire them, and it kind of lets them whittle away a lot of the the um, the folks that might be applying <laughs> for that for that for that bid. Uh, and so, a lot of times, that if you want to be part of that, then you need to have those things. And there's a lot of things like that. You know, we had uh, basic insurance that we had to have, and sometimes the insurance to work at a at a facility was. Uh, you know, $2 million of loss and $5 million of liability. And when you say that, when they say that, that like they need a, um, they need proof of that kind of insurance to do the event, they're cutting out 99% of the folks that could possibly do that event um, because most people don't carry that much insurance. Um, so folks like with, with PixelCore, we carried that much insurance because we had to do those jobs. We would up our, our stuff to handle whatever the job required. And then we always had it. Um, and so it was, it was, you know, so those kinds of things help you separate. I will say that things like this, you put that little certification on, it helps separate you from the, uh, from the pack. Um, next question. Douglas Carmichael's up next. He says the simply live marketing material mentioned compatibility, not only with Zixi, but Nimbra transport. I have no experience with either, but wouldn't Zixi be much less expensive than a Nimbra given that it runs on existing server infrastructure? Yeah, the, the big thing with the Nimbras is that the the latency is much lower. So, um, and and they're really designed. The Nimbras don't particularly like to be over the open internet. <laughs> they can't be, but they're you know. So they're designed. If you've got a if you've got a um, if you're an internet two, uh, if you've got dedicated fiber, you know. So things like the switch use a lot of Nimbras um, to to make that actually work. And they're really designed as these um, very very low latency, highly configurable systems um, that you that you may be able to use there. So. Uh, and we use them a lot in higher end production to to get move move stuff around. But it's extremely typically the environment that we use the Nimbras are extremely low latency, high you know high quality um, uh, transport of either uh, 1080 uncompressed that kind of thing, 4K. Um, you know we can send hundreds of channels of audio uh, at almost almost zero latency across the U.S. Um, you know we're talking less than. 50 millisecond kind of transport times um, to, to get there. So so they're, that's what we typically use them for. So their advantage over Zixi is Zixi tends to need to spool up. So um, I don't usually expect Zixi to have a latency under two seconds. Um, it, it may be capable of that, but it kind of starts to unwind. Same thing with SRT. Once you go take SRT under a second, 
you're starting to unwind the advantages that it has. <laughs> you know, so so you're taking you're taking away the the thing that it has to, that it can do. Uh, and but when you start talking about private fiber networks with Nimbras, you're now talking about um, you know very low latency. Um, you know, probably if you want to think about it in terms of Zoom, about uh, half to a quarter the latency of Zoom. Um, next question. Next one comes to us from Douglas Carmichael, and he says, would the ATEM Constellation HD models still have the ATEM gray issue when sending video to Zoom? I'll go ahead, Mitchell. Uh, the first to tell you what ATEM gray is, that occasionally when you're using uh, the U, uh, UVC connection to your computer, uh, the ATEM will uh, freeze up and send a gray screen, very dark gray screen. Uh, to answer your specific question, uh, the Constellation, I have not heard about any problems, nor have I heard that the Web Presenter Pro doing the same thing. So it seems to be specific to our minis and uh, such. Good, Courtney. Yeah, I don't think the SDIs will have this problem. And if you're using an external encoder to encode to uh, get into Zoom rather than a USB interface directly from the switcher, I think all of this this gray issue is a problem with the handshake of the USB interface on the ATEMs. I'm, I haven't confirmed that, but that's my, I'm, I'm getting that vibe. So if you're not using the USB interface and you're using an external interface to get into Zoom or encoder, uh, you may not have that problem. Yeah, the um, uh, it appears that somewhere between uh, fifteen and forty requests, you know, for that, uh, you know, for the the web. happening um uh yeah next question next question comes to us from tobias moss in minneapolis minnesota and he asks what would be a good interview request interview question questions of an applicant's references to determine if they are truly collaborative as opposed to i do it my way and that's it good bill I think a lot of the questions that you hear in interviews about how would you approach this problem, one of the things that they might be looking for is whether you think, well, I would do, I would do, this is how I would do it, as opposed to, well, here are some suggestions and I would consult with the team in order to figure out this part of it. And it, sometimes you can pick up cues from those open-ended questions that are always start with how would you approach. Yeah, good guy. 
Yeah, I always like to use past tense. Tell me about a time that you uh, worked on a team and accomplished a mission. You know, so then it's a specific thing that they can go back. They're not making it up as they go along going forward. It's a specific thing in the past. So a lot of the times that I'm interviewing people, it's tell me about a time because it's like a record that starts playing in their head. And even if they say something, sometimes they'll say something that they didn't even want to, but it's because it's true. You know, it's that they can't. They're not making it up on the fly, and you can you can tell if this if the story's accurate or. Uh, there's things that you can do by looking at people's eyes as well and see if they're making it up as they're going along or if it's visual recall. There, I'll put a link in the chat to some of the stuff that uh, you can take a look at when you're interviewing people where their eyes go. Yeah, the I, uh, um, you know, for for me, mostly what I do is I build, I do other things that, that allow people to work at a low, low work around me, whether it's volunteers processes or, uh, bringing them in for you know as a, for one job as a freelancer or those kinds of things, and I just I just really want to see them. I don't really want to interview them. I want to see them do things. So hire them as a as a freelancer usually is the first thing that you know, or or doing something like PixelCore or Office Hours or whatever. It's how you see people or how I see people. Um, I I don't know if I would ever be very good at interviewing folks. I know that I've had a couple interviews, and and uh, when people blame other people for things, I usually assume they're not very good at what they do. Um, so I, I very quickly, so if they say, well, this person did this, and then this person did this, then I usually write them off. <laughs> you know. And the other thing was is that the other one is that I I interviewed one person that said I just want to be happy. And I was like, well, that, that was you know I kept on talking, but the interview was over. <laughs> it's like like I was like that person not going to be happy ever. All right. We are now changing subjects uh, to our second hour, and we have Gary Trenda here from Sound Devices. Hey, Gary, can you hear us okay? Hey, I hear you great. You hear me okay? We hear you great. Fantastic. All right. uh, we love it when guests come in well-prepared. <laughs> so, um, so, Gary, tell us a little bit about, uh, we're going to be talking about RF. Uh, tell us a little bit about your background uh, in, in, uh, in sound, and, but, but specifically in, uh, in, in RF management. Sure. Yeah, I, gosh, I got started in sound 27 years ago now, which seems like quite a long time. I started off as a system tech, setting up speaker systems, traveling around the country, doing concert tour work. And I think a lot of guys who ended up in my part of the you know world started that way. And then I really got into RF when I got a job with Cirque du Soleil. This is back in the early 2000s. Uh, and they were building the, the Ka show at the MGM Grand in Las Vegas. And I was the first audio tech that had been hired just to do RF because there were 216 channels of RF on that show, which in the early 2000s was kind of a crazy number of, of uh, RF channels. Right. So, and that's when I ended up meeting, you know, guys like James Staffo who owned professional wireless systems and folks from Sure and Sennheiser and different manufacturers who were supporting the show. And I've kind of been focused on wireless audio things ever since. Uh, for the last and, I mean, Cirque du Soleil has got to be one of the hardest wireless systems that that I know of. Sure, it's, yeah. I mean, you, you're, you're putting wireless packs on performers doing some real acrobatic things. And in that show, most of the performers also had some sort of an IFB built into their costume so they could get instructions from stage management. And a lot of it was related to safety issues. So it was really you know critical that it was high reliability kind of stuff. Right. And, and what are some of the, you know, as you start to do that, what are the biggest challenges that start to crop up when you're doing, with dealing with that many mission critical channels? Yeah, I mean, your your band plan is kind of where you start. You understand, you know, back then we had more spectrum to operate in, so it was a little bit easier, but it's still very high channel count, and you're trying to figure out where does everything fit because you've got, you know, IFB, which is transmit systems, but you've also got microphones on musicians, uh, receive systems, and you want to separate those out by a certain amount. And 
there are other things like wireless intercom that uh, show that size. We had you know, over 50 people on wireless intercom for every show. And, and back then, all of those people had to transmit and receive frequency in the UHF band. So band planning all that out and then figuring out your coverage for the entire theater, like where do your antennas need to go? You know, what kind of antenna distribution do you need to have? Like all of those things are an interesting engineering question when you're building a show. And and you said we had more, uh, you had more spectrum to work with. What, what can you uh, underline that a little bit about what, what happened? Sure. Yeah. So when I started doing RF in, and I'm based in the U.S., in the United States, we had from 470 meg to 806 megahertz as kind of our core UHF TV band, which is where we tended to place a lot of these wireless systems. Uh, and that shrunk uh, when you know, 4G LTE systems and other things came in 700 meg, you've got folks like you know Verizon and AT&T, and there's some public safety radio things that happened in 700 meg. So all that went away, and we did 470 to 698. Uh, then there was a sell-off more recently of a lot of 600 megahertz. And so now we're talking 470 to 608 is our core UHF TV band in the U.S. And so it's significantly less spectrum. And the demands for wireless systems are, I think, as high as they've ever been. So we're really thinking a lot more about, you know, band planning and spectral efficiency types of uh, issues. And how do you solve that kind of problem? Yeah, I mean, you want systems that are more spectrally efficient. Uh, you want systems that are more uh, resistant to like intermod products. So when you can, you can place transmitters closer together, digital systems can tend to be more spectrally efficient. Uh, yeah, and just alternate frequency bands is something we're also talking about. I mean, it's something with the you know, products I support at Sound Devices now, we can tune from 470 to 1525 rather than 470 to 608. And so there are a number of alternate bands above 600 megahertz. And this is true almost worldwide that there are, Areas you can put wireless microphones, but most systems, are, you know, are not capable of operating there. So that's a good thing to try and you know think about. Where else can I go if I've got a really crowded show with a really high channel count? And and uh, so you were at Cirque du Soleil, and then after that, did you, where did you go from there? So after that, I went to uh, a systems integrator. I worked as an engineer designing installed audio systems for a little while. And then got back to uh, wireless, uh, doing some work just as an independent consultant. Uh, a lot of my work was for professional wireless systems. Uh, so a company in Orlando, Florida that does a lot of, you know, large scale events. And I did frequency coordination and RF tech work for them for quite a while. And uh, I think that's where a lot of people have gotten to know me uh, from events like the Super Bowl, where I was the RF tech for the halftime show at the Super Bowl. That's a professional wireless show. So I've been doing. I'll actually be going back this year. It'll be my seventh year doing that. Well, and and what when you're a frequency coordinator, what does that what does that mean? So for a large event, uh, so example for like you guys in the Bay Area, the Salesforce.com does this Dreamforce event, right? And they take over essentially all of downtown San Francisco. And so there will be a team of frequency coordinators for an event like that. Uh, I was the lead frequency coordinator for that event for a couple of years. So we would have uh, people assigned to the different venues and all they're doing is assigning frequencies out to people who want to bring in wireless systems because you've got a large array of vendors who are using you know, wireless microphones, IFB, comms, two-way radios, like all sorts of different things that require coordination so that you know that your channel at your breakout session is going to work as well as somebody at a keynote and somebody down the hall with the exhibit booth. Everybody's got essentially their own lane to operate their RF systems in. 
And, and what do you use to manage that? Like, how do you actually, uh, you know, is it just an Excel sheet that says this is what you get yeah. or is it, or is it something more complicated? You need some sort of large database, uh, you know, working for professional wireless systems. I use professional wireless systems, IAS software quite a bit. They make a dedicated piece of software that do- helps you with that database function for frequency coordination, does the intermod calculations for you, helps you to zone out systems to different areas where in a large coordination like that, what you're thinking about is, how are the systems interacting? Are these transmitters close enough to each other that intermod products might happen? Are they further apart where I just need to make sure they're spaced out? Or are we in completely separate buildings in different part of town where I could reuse those frequencies? And where that becomes important is if you've got like, let's say a camera crew that's roaming around an entire uh, you know, conference like Dreamforce, they might be out shooting at one of the hotels and then over at one of the keynotes and then at some breakout somewhere. And they want their frequency to work at all of those places. So we need to assign them a frequency that has an open slot in every one of these locations. Do do you uh, do you have problems with rogue uh, rogue frequent rogue users? Yeah, sometimes. I mean, one one of the other functions of the frequency coordinators, they're typically there uh, doing a scan and watching to make sure that all of the frequencies that they see transmitting are ones that we've assigned out, right? And if there's something that we haven't assigned out, then, you know, they've got a portable spectrum analyzer and a directional antenna, and they can go out and actually try and track down where this transmission is coming from and <laughs> Come you know, over find, and... Yeah, find a very surprised person. Like, who are you? Why are you, you know, looking at my wireless gear? Right, right. Absolutely. Um, let's go ahead and open it up. Uh, Courtney, you have a couple, you have a question. Yeah, I just wanted to know if the transition to the like the A twenty Nexus, the digital full digital transmission, the frequency agile, and the the fact that these newer transmitters and receivers have to talk back and forth bidirectionally, uh, mm-hmm. if that has increased the uh, availability of bandwidth, and since they're a little more frequency agile uh, for you know true diversity receivers, has has that helped out any, or is that sure. make it, uh, more complex? Well, I think, you know, the events that I work, the channel counts haven't really gone down, but it makes it easier to coordinate because you've got more places you could put a microphone. And also with the the data channel that you mentioned, where you've got control of a transmitter that could be on talent, uh, that's going to give you the ability, if you do see some interference, like one of those rogue transmitters, like Alex is asking about, you can refrequency the transmitter while it's on talent and the receiver can follow along. And so you have some better tools for interference avoidance. Now, a lot of folks, you know, a lot of times we're talking about UHF, or, um, but a, a lot of folks are using these little ones, you know, these little mm-hmm. uh, five gigahertz and so on and so forth. How do those compare to this? And what what are the pluses and minuses of the of the less expensive ones that a lot of people are using for their, their little run and guns? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So like 2.4 and five mm-hmm. gig wireless microphone systems. Yeah. I think if you're in a less congested environment, particularly an environment where you've got that open spectrum in 2.4 or 5 gig, that can be a, a good way to go. Uh, you know, if you're just connecting to a DSLR, you only need a couple of channels. Mm-hmm. The larger deployments, you really need the spectrum to do 40 or 50 channels, which really isn't practical with some of those smaller systems. And on those more professional systems, you're going to see uh, a lot of additional tools just for reliability. Like you're going to have receivers that have multiple outputs, redundant power supplies. You're going to have transmitters that are, I'd say, generally speaking, better range and more reliable. So it's just a different tier of equipment, I would say. Go ahead, Jeffrey. Do you think that we'd ever have a hybrid system between uh, an RF and a Wi-Fi or a Bluetooth? 
Sure. I mean, I think you're seeing that now, like some of the 2.4 gigahertz systems essentially run Bluetooth radios to do their dedicated wireless link. And it's a frequency hopping system to kind of be uh, more tolerant of a congested RF environment. And you might see similar systems moving into the professional space. And how does DECT um, uh, kind of fit in between those things? Yeah, deck band is interesting. Um, deck band in Europe actually has a, a more available spectrum than in the U.S. So I think I've seen it, you know, gain popularity there. In the U.S., for the events I do, it's used a lot for intercom systems. Yeah, free speak. Um, yeah, free speak or Riedel Bolero or systems like that, where um, you're able to multiplex users on a single, somewhat wider RF channel. So in the U.S., the deck band is 10 megahertz. It's two megahertz channels, but depending on the system you have, you could maybe have 10 users multiplexed in each one of those channels. So on what's essentially five RF channels, you get 50 users. And um, other manufacturers make systems that operate wireless microphones there for a lot, a lot of speech applications, I would say, more than like the you know, performance systems that maybe require a little bit higher bandwidth, but speech application, same thing. You can multiplex users in there. It's good spectral efficiency, less frequency coordination that needs to happen. You just need to make sure nobody else is operating in the decked band nearby. We and, had that and, problem. And we, work. Yeah, we had, we had the, the, uh, the sure, um, you know, the, the sure system. I just can't think of the talking about, you know, the microflexes mm-hmm. and free speak. And then, and then at a hotel, somebody else obviously was doing exactly the same thing. So that became right. More, more yeah. And you'll find that those systems, I mean, they're aware of each other because the, there is a decked standard of how do these things interoperate. Cause right. part of the way that standard was written was for like cordless phones, where you think right. about if you're in an apartment building, you could have multiple decked cordless phones. And so they see the channels that the different systems are operating on but at some point you just run out of channels and time slots and so yeah. you start getting interference yeah we asked uh we asked sure when what is there ever been a place that the microflexes didn't work and they were like yeah plantronics don't work at all <laughs> <laughs> like that was the one the one company that didn't, sure yeah, yeah. Didn't, didn't, didn't ban out yeah. um and- an interesting anyway. thing that some of the wireless intercom guys are doing is actually clocking their uh, various decked intercom systems to the same PTP V2 master clock to try and sync up those time slots and have, you know, minimize the interference between the wireless intercom systems. What do you think is in on the horizon? I mean, obviously you're working on a lot of that at sound devices, but what are you, what are you really, what are you focusing on is like, this is the next gen of, of, of what we're doing for wireless? Uh, I mean, I think you've seen some of the other manufacturers talk about WMAS, the wireless multi-channel systems, where right now in that core UHF TV band, we're able to use uh, 200 kilohertz modulation for the wireless microphone. So each one of your mics has a 200 kilohertz bandwidth to to transmit in. Um, there, We're expecting a change to the FCC rules, and we've already seen rule changes in Europe that are along the same lines where we'll be able to use like a six megahertz wide channel for multiple microphones. So that opens up a lot of room to innovate in what you're able to do with these digital systems. How far out do you think that is? Uh, I don't know. I mean, the I expect to see the rule changes become official this year. So you might start seeing systems from manufacturers, at least in testing phases this year, next year. That's great. Um, let's open it to the uh, producers. What, what First question. Our first one comes from J.J. McKenna in Singapore. And J.J. asks, how much has the migration to digital transport for broadcast channels assisted with respect to available RF space? Uh, at least in the United States, it's made it worse, to be honest. I mean, like the DTV channels 
eat up the entire allocated six meg that they have to put out a TV signal where back in the old days when it was just analog TV, you would have uh, your main carrier, then a chroma subcarrier and an audio subcarrier. And that audio subcarrier was just like an FM radio transmission. If you had the right radio, you could tune into it. And there was some open space in between there. And now it's just a solid digital transmission. And as we talked about the repack, now that we're only operating in 470 to 608, uh, there are some large markets where there might only be one or two open TV channels to, to place wireless mics in. So you might only have six or 12 meg of good clean spectrum to place your systems. And, and is the reason we're getting re constantly repacked is just because telecommunications have a lot more lobbying money than than sound? sound yeah, I, I think money is certainly part of it. You know, the, the last auction where they sold 600 meg spectrum to T-Mobile, among others, um, that was billions of dollars. To, yeah. to purchase that spectrum. And so right now the broadcasters get that spectrum essentially for free. So yeah. when the government sees they can sell it for that kind of money, there there's a lot of weight there. I've, I've always felt that they should have added a tax on top of that, of that purchase that has to reimburse everybody who, who no longer has a transmitter that works. <laughs> like, yeah. like that, they would pay everybody for their, to, uh, you know, you know, an open fund to do yeah. that as part of it. There was a push for that to like, you know, help at least people buy new wireless systems that are impacted by the, the rules changes. And they did actually uh, pay some of the broadcasters for the cost in changing their, because transmit tower equipment's expensive and getting a tower crew to go change your antenna is expensive. And so they did reimburse some of that, but I don't think we're going to get money for wireless mics anytime soon. Yeah. <laughs> Next question. Carl Markser in New York is up with this one. I'm a freelancer in New York City with a MixPre 10. Would a spectrum analyzer like the Tiny SA be useful for coordinating frequencies on my Sony wireless lab mics? Sure. Uh, I mean, the first thing to do is to see if your receiver that you're using right now has a scan function. Like that's, you know, when I talk to users, the big thing is just like have some visibility of your local RF environment. Um, your scan function is your place to start because that's a receiver you already own. And then, yeah, an inexpensive spectrum analyzer like the Tiny SA that can give you kind of a visual idea of what's in that RF environment that I'm trying to place a, a transmitter in. You know, what other things are in there? We've talked a lot about television, but it could be other transmitters. It, uh, you know, could be your, um, uh, I don't know, it, anything that's in that in like Wi-Fi environment, like we talked about 2.4 gig, uh, what are the other channels that those things are operating on? Just getting a visual idea of what's there is is really helpful. And a tiny SA is just a small little piece of hardware that just is kind of a graphical interface with a antenna and it just kind yeah, of tells you what's Tiny there. spectrum analyzer, it's, it's some inexpensive hardware. Um, you can get them like on Amazon. I think they're less than $100. Um, the RF Explorer is another low cost one. If you get into kind of the area that, you know, the sort of shows that I'm doing, people will have equipment from companies like Signal Hound or Tektronics or uh, Keysight that do, do similar things, but with a much fancier radio, much fancier front end on it. So just a spectrum analyzer that allows you to visually see the frequencies that you're operating in and then the level of the local transmissions. It's the kind of thing you just connect to your antenna and see what's out there in the air. Next question. JJ McKenna back from Singapore, and he says, are there particular ranges that are easier to use for audio coordination? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, obviously, it depends on the country you're in, what the you know legal bandwidth is in your country. Uh, generally speaking, it's just about finding open spectrum, what some people call it white spaces. It's just find an area of the RF spectrum where 
other transmitters are not operating. You know, clean, quiet RF spectrum is your friend when you're trying to get a reliable wireless microphone set up. And so that, and that's really the, uh, you almost have to have something like the tiny SA, right? To, to be able to um, find those things and be able to visually understand, okay, this is where I'm, this is where I want to go. This is all the other things. Cause it's not just our other people using wireless mics, right? There's, there could be a lot of other things using up that spectrum and you should be able to see all of that from that tool. Yeah. Have a spectrum analyzer that operates in the same frequency range as your mics do. Um, and as I said, some microphones have a nice spectrum analysis option on it. I mean, we, you know, we've got a real-time spectrum analyzer on the new sound devices Nexus that will give you a really nice uh, look at your RF spectrum. You know, the spectrum managers from other uh, manufacturers are kind of a cool, cool thing. So yeah, just looking at your spectrum and understanding, uh, even if you don't have a spectrum analyzer, knowing what your regulations are, right? I mean, you could go easily do a search for whatever city you're in and see what TV stations are broadcasting there. And you'll at least know that I can't operate on top of the same frequency as a TV station because that's, you know, hundreds of thousands of watts and I am you know, 10 milliwatts. Right. <laughs> the first thing we tell people when they have uh, a, uh, when they buy a Sennheiser ENG 100 is change the, you know, just, just, just change your frequency because everyone, no one else does. <laughs> yeah. Don't use so, the default frequency, yeah, right? Exactly. Uh, next question. Ronnie Hofsey in Tromsø, Norway, says uh, he's interested in when to use the antenna included with the receiver and when to change it out for a paddle antenna. Sure. Uh, so generally speaking, receivers will come with some sort of a whip antenna, dipole antenna of some type that's usually omnidirectional. Uh, and then the these paddle or shark fin kind of antennas that are very popular are a directional antenna. Uh, the shark fins, a log periodic dipole array. There are helical antennas. There are Yagi antennas, depending on the systems you're using and what frequency band you're operating in. But the big picture idea with that is a directional antenna generally has some amount of gain. So if you're an audio guy, think about it like a microphone, you know, an Omni mic versus a cardioid mic. A cardioid mic is good in the direction you point it and not good other areas. Um, these directional antennas are the same way you'll have, if you can point it at the talent that has the transmitter on, uh, you'll get some gain in that direction. And so that can be helpful for a lot of situations to get some just passive gain from uh, antenna that doesn't have to have active electronics on it. Some of the shark fin antennas do have active electronics. So if you're buying one of those, you want to think about what's the filtering on that and then what's the amplifying that's happening on that. It plays into your overall gain structure of your RF system, which again, similar to audio gain, you want to make sure that you've got an appropriate amount of signal coming in, but you don't want to overload just like you wouldn't want to take your preamp on your mixer and turn it all the way up until it distorts, right? And in some cases, does it, it, it's actually better to have the fins a little further away, like not necessarily right. Like I think there's a temptation to put them right on stage or to, to do that, but they, they tend to work a little bit better from a, from a distance. Yeah, it, it depends on your pattern. Um, I would say a couple of things. Usually there's two fins because we've got a diversity receiver. And so it's easy to separate those fins out enough if they're not mounted right on your piece of equipment. Like you want them to be a wavelength apart, which at the frequencies we're talking about is not that far apart, right? A couple feet sometimes. Um, space them apart. But then if you want to get a larger coverage area, you might want to put one on stage left and one on stage right as an example. And if, if you have an appropriate system where you could put some gain into the further antenna, uh, that might just widen out your coverage range. And yeah, to your question, like thinking about that 90 degree or 80 degree pattern, letting that open up so that you're for sure in the pattern everywhere that you're walking with the transmitter. Okay, Jeffrey. 
Uh, as for the passive ones, uh, I know that you have like a 4, a 5 dB, and a 9 dB. Would changing that out actually help or is just something you don't have to worry about? Yeah. Um, so passive antennas, uh, for example, an LPDA is going to have around 6 dB of gain. And then if you want more gain, you would go to like a narrower pattern. Like maybe you'd go to a four turn helical that might have a 50 degree pattern, but more like 10 dB of gain. So it's the, the basic physics of it is the narrower the pattern on it, the more gain you have in the direction you're aiming it, but the less sensitive it is other areas. Um, if you've got an antenna that the physical antenna is not changing and they say it's got four or eight or 10 dB of gain, there's probably an amplifier in there that you're switching the gain setting on the amplifier. Next question. Comes from uh, our friend Guy Conkren here on the panel from Seattle. For eight channels, why would you go with the sound device's A20 versus using two of the Electrosonics DSR4 receivers? Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm lucky I'm the applications engineer here, so I support people who are using the Electrosonics receivers in our SL2 product with eight series mixer recorders. And obviously I support our A20 Nexus receiver, so... I get to be a little bit of Switzerland about this. Like they're both excellent products. Um, I think the advantage of having an integrated eight channel receiver is you're just, you get more functionality out of an A20 Nexus than you would out of a slot receiver in an SL2. That's really anybody's slot receiver. There's just more things you can do with it. And it's, you know, got a big color touch screen on it and a real time spectrum analyzer and spectrum band tuning and all the, all the fun bells and whistles. Right. Yeah. And I think that, I think a lot of times uh, people underestimate the power of an interface. You know, when things are easier, you do them more often. Like, you know, mm -hmm. so when they're when they're harder to get to, when they're harder to set, you tend to set and forget or tend to resist making the changes that you need to make because they're just harder to deal with. And when those things are integrated and exposed to the front, you know, in, in, a, in a nice way, you tend to fine tune things um, a lot more. Yeah, and something we thought about a lot with the A20 Nexus receiver is also the ability to remote it. You know, we talked to so many people who are setting up and then they want to move from different sets very quickly and they maybe have a common cart location where they're recording. And so the fact that you can just PoE power it and send Dante audio back to anywhere, just run out a single cable, I think is pretty powerful. And being able to dock and undock it from your mixer recorder is another kind of cool feature. Uh, next question. Looks like JJ McKenna again in Singapore, and it looks like this is how much spectrum availability was there in the 5300 ranges back in 2008? Or was availed, what well, was lost, I guess, in the. Oh, okay. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I'm not sure. Are we talking about the, the sell offs that we talked about yeah. for the US? Yeah, I think we're, we're kind of coming back to that again, but yeah. But yeah. It's, sure. This, this so we'll probably ask before we talk. <laughs> Got it. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, we went from 470 to 806, and then we lost all of 700 megs. So we went 470 to 698. And then we lost most of 600. There's still a guard band and a duplex gap in 600 that's allowed for use in the US. But other than that, now we're 470 to 608. So we're down to 128 meg or so. And we say 128 meg, like what, how many mics do you think? I mean, what, like people kind of put that in their head, like how many yeah. mics or how many channels could you put into that right. range? 128 meg would be a dream for uh, doing an event right now. The, the problem really is that within that 128 meg is digital television transmissions. And so what we're dealing with in large cities is generally far less than that, like maybe 
24 meg or, or six. Right, because you know. there's 128 meg, but each one of those digital transmissions is taking six of that, right? That's a, like a six meg yeah. uh, slot that's just basically pulled out of it. That's exactly right. So you start with that 470, like that's in the US, that's TV channel 14. And so TV channel 14 would be broadcasting from 470 to 476. And then TV channel 15 would be, you know, 476 to uh, 482 and on up from there. So you're looking for what channels of those are vacant to start with. That's kind of your basic, I'm coordinating wireless microphones in the UHF TV band thing to ask. Uh, so yeah, and within a six meg TV channel, you could potentially space wireless microphones. You know, if you're not concerned with intermod, you could space them every 350 or 400 kilohertz apart. So you can, you know, easily pack 20 microphones into a single vacant TV channel. Right. Uh, but there's typically a lot of other considerations about what's in the air and what frequency band does your gear operate in and those sorts of things. Right. Yeah. So, and, and that's the advantage of having something that does, that covers that whole frequency is that you don't, you're not saying, well, I only have this block or I only have this, you know, this little area here. Yeah. Yeah. When I talk to people about the spectra band tuning for the sound devices products, we're tightly filtering those receivers down to a 24 meg tuning band. But the thing is really finding that 24 meg that is, you know, clean spectrum. And within that 24 meg, you can easily fit, you know, well over 16 channels of wireless mics if that's all vacant RF spectrum. Right. Uh, next question. Mickey Makachor in uh, the Philippines says, what is intermodulation and how does it affect RF audio transmission and how is it calculated? Oh, that's a, a great question. So, uh, and this is uh, something people were more concerned about with older analog wireless systems just because they're generally more susceptible to generating intermod products. And it, there's a lot of, you know, it depends caveats there, but generally speaking, uh, the systems 20 years ago generated more intermods than our, our current wireless systems. But the software still considers these intermod products that could be generated. Uh, I've actually got a slide that I would like to share if that's yeah, okay. Certainly. Yeah, sure. About intermods. So let's take a look at this. Because I think it helps to kind of get a visual look at what's going on. So what we're talking about is, let's just start with something simple. Like I've got two body pack transmitters. As these body pack transmitters start getting closer to each other, the the each transmitter essentially sees the other one. And what you start to see happen is the signal that is transmitting from each gets mixed in uh, within the electronics of the other one. And so they start to create these intermodulation products, which uh, again, audio guy, I kind of like to think of these as sort of like harmonics. So you've got two frequencies that are mixing together and generating uh, new frequencies. And so you can see in the slide here, and this is something I blatantly stole from my uh, friends at Sure, they uh, show eight foot and a four foot separation of these two frequencies. And so as you're separated by eight feet, you can see a weak third order. And the third order is the first intermod product that you're going to see start to come up on the sides there. And then as you get the transmitters closer together, you might see a stronger third order intermod product. And as you get really close, you start to see strong thirds and then maybe fifths. And so it's really these harmonic signals that are generated and it's based on transmitter spacing. So when you're trying to decide, do I care about intermod or not? The first thing you want to ask yourself is how close are these transmitters getting to each other? Uh, and as I mentioned, the digital systems, because of the nature of the transmitter design, the type of power amplifiers that are used, they, gen they tend to generate 
lower level intermod products if they generate them all. And you t- tend to have to get them closer together uh, before you start to see these intermod products. So they're they're less of a concern with digital systems, but they can still happen, particularly third order intermod products when maybe you've got two transmitters that are on the same person, right? Like you've got double miking your, ta- your, your principal talent, maybe. Uh, if you're putting two body pack transmitters on talent, you know, try to get them on each hip if you can, separate them out a little bit rather than putting them right next to each other on their belt, because uh, that'll reduce your intermod products. But that's definitely an example of a transmitter where you would want to think about intermod and, and do an intermod calculation. And when we say do an intermod calculation, essentially what we mean is we're going to avoid the frequencies where these intermod products might fall. And we're not going to assign other microphones there because it's essentially interference that we're generating that we're then trying to stay away from. And do you hear the intermod? intermod or is it just something that that is going to conflict with other frequencies you just have to get around them yeah i mean generally speaking the the result of not doing an intermod calculation would be placing another microphone here uh, on that third order intermod product trying to tune your receiver there and seeing a signal even when your microphone is is turned off so when you're setting up a larger system we've got this idea of wargaming the system where we're going to turn all of the microphones on, get audio coming in from all of them, then we're going to go and turn them off one at a time. And as we turn them off individually, we'll look to see if there are any uh, interfering signals that are there underneath the primary carrier signal. Uh, and with your digital systems, they've got a Q meter now on them, which is like a quality meter. And the Q meter uh, is exactly the tool for this, where it'll tell you if there is some interfering signal that's on channel, it's on your frequency and interfering with you. That's great. Um, yeah, so uh, next next question. Next question comes up from J.J. McKenna again in Singapore. If you were in charge of the FCC, what changes would you make to the current regulations to make frequency coordination easier? <laughs> well, yeah, selfishly, I'd obviously allocate dedicated spectrum for wireless mics. Like there's, there was a proposal to have at least one open TV channel per market for wireless systems, and that uh, isn't going to happen now. Um Separate from just wireless audio, the other thing I would do is in the U.S., I would encourage them to do what other countries do and lease the spectrum rather than selling it for billions of dollars. I think long term, that's going to be better uh, for you know just our, our long term spectrum band planning. So people have so that the buyers have to keep on deciding that they want to pay for that bandwidth rather than just owning it and and using it. They have there's a cost to it. Yeah, that bandwidth is going to become more and more valuable, and it gives you a little more kind of free market economy to it. Yeah, absolutely. Next question. Peter Beldeman in Houston wonders if there is a rule of thumb regarding when the receiver system should be closer to the stage versus closer to the mixing position. Yeah, the the actual antennas in the receiver closer to talent is is always better. And it allows you to do some things like not use the amplified antennas, which if you don't have to, don't. I mean, a passive uh, directional antenna going into your receiver is still one of the more reliable ways to set up a lot of these wireless systems uh, or even a passive omni antenna if you're close enough. Um, all these other active electronics in in the signal path, they work if you need them, but in a lot of cases when you don't, it's just additional complexity, additional like filtering that you have to think about, amplifiers that you have to think about, noise that it's adding into the system. So I would always get my antennas close if I could. And then you know, there's a lot of good ways to ship digital audio long distances that, you know, doesn't seal any loss. Yeah, go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, isn't it always worse to uh, separate the antenna from the receiver? 
uh, to get it closer to the talent than it is to actually move the receiver itself uh, closer to the talent uh, because of the loss in the cable between the antenna and the receiver or amplifier. Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, when uh, my stagehands would be mad at me a lot of times because I'd bring really big, heavy coaxial cable. If I had to run 150 feet of coax, I'd be running stuff like LMR 400. I remember one year for a long distance in your monitor transmit, I brought LMR 600, which the that number on the coax really is the size, like it's 0.6 inches of outside diameter. It's a giant piece of cable. But <laughs> as as the cable gets larger, the loss generally goes down. And so for long runs, use big coax, and same thing that it re- reduces your need for amplification. A big coax or Ethernet. <laughs> That's what you know. Like we we use Dante. I mean, we for most of our wireless in a location, we might be a long way away, but we uh, for us, we're kind of yeah converting that to Dante as fast as we can to get it to get yep. it out of that that move. Um, next question, JJ McKenna back from Singapore. What's the best practice for antenna placement and polarity? Is this affected by the pattern of the antenna? Yeah, so um, the kind of whip antennas we were talking about or dipole antennas, those, you know, if if the antenna is sitting straight up and down, that it's vertically polarized would be what we would call it. Uh, most of those antennas tend to have an omnidirectional pattern around this way, and then they're least sensitive right above and right below, as you'd imagine. So the overall pattern in, ends up being kind of a toroidal or donut shape to it, omni pattern. Um, so vertical polarization, you'll see people take one, antenna go up and one go sideways or they'll maybe take put them both at 45 degree angles if they're very close together i think that makes a difference if you're already spacing them out on stands that's less important because your multi-path and reflections and other things that are going on are going to be a bigger deal than that specific antenna polarization um helical antennas have got gained popularity because they're circularly polarized rather than like vertically or horizontally polarized and so that can be a a good thing Uh, an example of that is an iem or ifb transmitter where if you transmit it with a helical antenna and send out a circularly polarized wave that can hit the receiver that talent's wearing which generally has a small whip antenna on it and you get better match between that uh, helical antenna and the whip antenna on talent and better performance out of that system is, is one of the reasons people tend to use helicals on those. When you talk about that whip, um, mm-hmm. you know, so for a lot of those, the whip, these, these whips that come off of these transmitters can be longer or shorter. Mm-hmm. How does that affect the, the frequencies? Yeah, so you want to have the correct length, and those are all tuned to a, a particular frequency with a typical whip antenna on a, a transmitter or receiver pack. Um, it's probably good to within 10% of the frequency that it's tuned to. And so if you're, if you know that I've got an antenna that's tuned to 550 megahertz, if you all of a sudden need to change to a system that's operating up in, you know, 690 megahertz, let's say if you're in Europe, you would want a different length of antenna. You want to change your antenna out. Uh, and that's one of the reasons why those LPDA shark fin antennas or bow tie antennas or some of these things are popular with the receive side of uh, the equipment because those antennas have a much wider bandwidth than the whip antennas do. And so they can operate, you know, you can make an LPDA antenna that operates from 470 up to, you know, 1.5 gigahertz if you wanted to. Next question. Jason Panks in Nashville, Tennessee. Up next, any concerns with RF competition from Wi-Fi or Internet of Things wireless? 
Yeah, it kind of depends on your system. I mean, I was working an event some time back where we had a wireless system that was operating in 900 ISM band, which in the Americas is 902 to 928. Uh, and there was a RFID system that operated there as well. Uh, I've been places where public utility uses uh, 902 to 928 for, for gas meters. Uh, we talked about Wi-Fi mics as well, where you might have uh, Bluetooth systems operating in 2.4 gig wireless networks operating in 2.4 gig and then wireless microphones. So as with all of this, it's really just knowing what else is there in that spectrum. And if you have the ability deciding beforehand, uh, if this is the right system to deploy based on what else is going to be operating in that RF spectrum at, at your venue. Next question. Peter Belbin in Houston is back with when do you tend toward using helicolect antennas and what are your main benefits over other antenna types? Yeah, so we talked about the circular polarization of a, of a helical antenna. Um, so that can be a benefit, uh, you know, particularly IM or IFB transmit. Um, and commonly available helical antennas tend to be a two-turn or a four-turn. Uh, and it's the same thing we talked about before. A two-turn helical would be a wider pattern with a little less gain, uh, maybe an 80-degree pattern. And then a four-turn and this depends a little bit on frequency, but then a, a four-turn helical might be a 50-degree pattern um, with a, a higher gain. And so you you do that gain calculation of how far away am I trying to pick this thing up? And if you're trying to pick something up at a great distance, it can probably fit into a 50-degree pattern pretty easily. If it's you know close in on the stage, you're not too, too worried about gain, but you want that wider uh, pickup area, maybe a two-turn helical is the right way to go. What is the practical limit to right right now to wireless transmission? When you think about like the antenna to the to the transmitter, what are the kind of distances that you say? Well, like we how far can you go? How far? How far can it go? Yeah, I mean, I think most of the events I work, we try to keep it within a hundred feet. I mean, I've certainly done systems that will go, you know, two to three hundred feet uh, with with the right antenna setup. Uh, and at that point, you really just start thinking about, can I put additional antennas out? Do I need a multi-zone antenna system? So as you walk between various areas, are you always in the coverage of a local zone of antennas? And how do I combine that together to feed uh, a set of receivers? I know, you know, on the sound devices side of things, folks in reality TV are very, uh, you know, well-versed in doing this where they may be operating in a house where they have to set up three different zones and have something outside and, and that sort of thing. So we, Obviously, keep it as close as possible, but you know you can go hundreds of feet if you need to and design the system right. And how does that matrix work? You know, when you're when you're moving from one set of receivers to another. Sure. So you're you're setting up these zones, and you've got a transition area where hopefully that's someplace where you don't need wireless coverage. Um, and so you want to make sure that as you move between the zones, as you start to drop off in signal level from one set of antennas, you start to pick up on the other one. Uh, you know, general rule of thumb on those things is once you've dropped by maybe 15 dB or so, you might want to start thinking about picking up on your next system. And there's usually metering on your receivers that can tell you that. And, and is that being done in the, the receive or is it being done in the, I mean, where is the decision to switch from one to the other? Is that the mixer or is that the, um, or is it a uh, automated system? Sure. It depends on the system. The The simplest version would just be pa a passive system where you've, you've got, uh, you're either placing the antenna specifically to get that uh, correct transition from one to another in terms of the signal level, or maybe you're inserting some sort of a pad, right? You're literally just turning the RF down until you get the levels matched up to what you want. And then you can passively combine those together. So the receiver 
may always see three sets of antennas, but the levels coming in are such that the level will be strong on one set and weak on the other two in that example. Go ahead, Courtney. Uh, if you're doing camera hops, so which a lot of guys do, in, especially in reality, where you're transmitting back to a receiver that's mounted on the camera itself, and that camera is mm -hmm. usually either handheld or in a steady cam, and that handheld or steady cam camera will also have a video transmitter on it that's transmitting up in the microwave areas. Mm -hmm. uh, is it better to have a miniature helical, or is it whips, or uh, are you going to be? Is it a problem being swamped by the video transmitter since you're within a foot of it sometimes? And yeah, and what are those considerations if you're trying to do a clean camera hop? Yeah, it's a good question. I think a lot of times you don't have too much choice as far as what kind of uh, antennas you can put on that camera receiver side of things because it's got to be small, lightweight. So you're generally using a whip or some sort of dipole antenna. You're not going to mark like mount a large shark fin antenna on camera, right? Uh, so really what you're trying to do there, I think generally is pick a system that's well filtered. And so like if I'm using a camera hop that might be operating in 600 megahertz, let's say, uh, and my wireless video transmitter is up in 2.4 or 5 gig, your, your receiver on the camera for that uh, audio link is going to filter out everything above 700 megahertz very well. And so by the time you get to 2.4 or 5 gig, that should essentially be gone. You've got an RF bandpass filter on the front end of your receiver that should get rid of that. And uh, that problem is actually a bigger deal, I think, for uh, location sound folks with IFB. You see people who put like an IFB transmitter in the bag and have a receiver in the bag. And a lot of those IFB systems are tuning in the same UHF TV range as your mic receives. And so that's one of the things we're trying to address at Sound Devices with these 24 meg, very steep roll off soft filters. Uh, where as long as you're outside of that 24 meg tuning band, ideally by at least 12 meg, you'll have a very strong amount of attenuation on the IFB transmitter. And so it won't impact the receiver uh, performance. Even though it's that close, it can kind of swamp the front end just directly or... Uh... Yep. And yeah, and that's a good the saw filter. Uh, yeah, and so for it reduces the sensitivity of the receiver. So right, right. For people who aren't RF guys, uh, there's this idea of, of desense where um, you know, think about if you and I are trying to have a conversation, and then all of a sudden you just turn on the radio and crank the volume all the way up. Right. Even if it's not the conversation that we're trying to listen to, if it's close enough and if it's loud enough, it's going to impact our ability to have a conversation. And that's the same thing with these IFB transmitters. If it's a close enough and high power enough signal, it's going to impact that receiver's ability to receive and decode audio. Next question. Next one comes to us from Guy Cochran in Seattle, and he's wondering if you're seeing much action in the 941 megahertz band. Yeah, we've that's been a very popular place for people to go. Uh, it's one of these alternate frequency bands in, in the United States where 941 to 960 941.5 to 960 is legal for wireless microphone operation as long as you've got a Part 74 license, which we encourage everybody to get who's operating wireless microphone systems. What's a, what's a Part 74 license? So FCC Part 74 rules, you can get a license to operate a low-power auxiliary station, which is, in fact, I've got a slide for this too, if we want to go back to that to give you a quick overview on Part 74. Let me share this. Okay. So um, you're allowed to operate under 
part 15 rules uh, up to 50 milliwatts in US, UHF TV band. But then if you have a part 74 license, you're allowed to operate up to 250 milliwatts. Um, and then you've got these other bands that we're listing out. And these are all rules for the United States for folks that aren't in the US. But um, you can see there's a, a licensed band from 653 to 657. And then uh, we mentioned there's a licensed band that is in 941.5 to 960. And so if you are someone who is uh, a large venue owner operator, motion picture producer, uh, professional sound company, television program producer, you can apply for a license from the FCC to operate these uh, low power auxiliary stations, which are really mics, IFBs, wireless intercoms. Uh, and so it's really just filing for a license with the FTCC, kind of like if you wanted to get your ham radio operator's license. In fact, it's easier to get than a ham radio license because you don't need to take a test or anything. And uh, you can be licensed to operate wireless mics. So, and, and, yeah. and how hard is it to prove that you're a large venue owner or a professional sound company? To I mean, like, is it just something you kind of fill out? They're recommending that or do they really want to know that you're that? Yeah. So the licenses that I've helped people file, I think the FCC generally... Um, takes your word for it. I mean, you have to sign a affidavit saying that I certify that the, everything that I'm telling you is, is accurate. Uh, when I applied for my license, I was doing a lot of work for, you know, the TV broadcast, a lot of sports. And so, you know, I can put, I worked for ABC and ESPN and uh, on there and they right. don't question that then I'm involved in production of television programs. Uh, and professional sound company, as long as you use a lot of channels, I mean, anybody doing reality TV used, you know, using more than 50 channels, right? So that's probably the simplest one to just say, I operate wireless mics and I operate more than 50 on a regular basis. And that's that qualifies you to apply for this license. Next question. Mickey Makachor in the Philippines is back in Manila. Can you discuss the advantages and or disadvantages of RF Venues Diversity FIM? So yeah, diversity fin is really, I think uh, it's it's a good product. It's mainly for convenience. It's I don't want to set up two antennas, right? I want to set up one antenna and run two pieces of coaxial cable to it. Uh, it's got an LPDA directional element to it, and then it's got a dipole element to it. So one of whichever you hook up the let's say you hook up the LPDA to your A antenna input, and you hook up your dipole to your B antenna input, you're generally going to get more signal on A. And then the B antenna is just there if there happened to be uh, some signal reflections that would cause a dropout on antenna A, then your antenna B, your omnidirectional dipole should pick that up is the idea behind it. So it's it's just co-locating an LPDA and a dipole antenna is the idea behind that. Next question. Alan Cavito in uh, Midlothian, Virginia says, how many RF frequencies are allocated at the Super Bowl? He's heard... 2000. Yeah. I, it really depends on uh, what you count, right? Because the the folks and the folks from the NFL, they call them EFCs, the event frequency coordinators. There's a, a team of, it's, it's got to be more than 20 of these guys that are at all the different venues, all the different events happening related to the Super Bowl, you know, people on field outside the stadium, they're all over the place. And they're doing what we talked about before in my example of the Dreamforce conference, where they're assigning frequencies to anybody using wireless systems. So they're worried about wireless audio, wireless video, wireless intercom. So yeah, if you count up all of these people and just all of the other signals that they keep track of, you know, every frequency that's there for law enforcement locally and 
you know, all the stuff that's in the air, it's definitely thousands of frequencies in their database. Uh, the wireless microphone users, you know, my setup that I have for halftime is a small subset of that. Like we've got hundreds, not thousands of frequencies in the stadium, but it's still kind of a mind boggling number of, of systems that you're trying to co-locate. Next question. Guy Cochran, Seattle, Washington again. What's one of the worst RF hits you've ever seen or heard of in production? And could it have been prevented? <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I think they can always be prevented. The I'll be honest and say, like, for the for the events that I do where you've got, you know, technicians that are, have got a lot of experience and, uh, you know, are, are setting up pretty large-scale antenna systems, the biggest failures tend more to be equipment failures rather than frequency failures. Like we've got systems with frequency, like redundancies, where interference on a single RF channel, a single audio carrier, it's not going to take out your show, but... You know, we've talked a lot about digital audio systems. If you lose a Dante audio link to one of your racks of equipment, you can lose a lot of channels in a hurry. And so that that tends to be the bigger failures that I have seen is is in that. And so something that I didn't think I'd be as um, well-versed in when I started doing this is just all of the networking setup, you know, setting up redundant networks and running fiber optic cable between network switches and integrating all that stuff in. I mean, at one point I took a Cisco, uh, like computer network academy, CCNA class to learn a little bit more about computer networking. Cause I was getting into configuring network systems to build some of these more complicated wireless intercom systems where it's, you know, SMPTE 2110 and AES 67. And there's a lot to setting that up as well, beyond just the, the actual wireless audio carrier aspect of it. Next question. Stefan Fischer in Würzburg, Germany says, we've heard that IFB and other body packs may interfere with each other. Wouldn't it then be better to offer both in one device so that the signals are far away from each other by design? Sure. I mean, that's what you saw with the old wireless intercom systems. Like when I started doing this, it was, you know, Telex BTR 800, 825 packs where you'd have a transmit frequency that might be, you know, 480 and a receive frequency that might be 650 or something where they're they're separated out and they're filtered like we were talking about before. Um, we're just kind of counting on people to do that manually now. Uh, I think with the current systems, if you're thinking about you know IFB and uh, microphone, the the companies that make those systems are a lot of times different companies or the systems don't tightly integrate together where you'd want to put a single body pack on talent. But I don't know, maybe that changes where you have a you know a headset mic with your you know, in your monitors going into a single pack. We, uh, the, the mic, the Shure Microflex has those, um, has both the, the little eighth inch jack as well as the, as, as well as the mic, mic input. Oh, sure. Cause deck band, right? Oh, so it's so great. Like it's just, it's just so great. Cause we just hand someone something. Um, and, and now we have that, that all, you know, we have their lab and then we're able to talk to them and we're not putting a bunch of packs on trying to figure it out. It's, it's pretty awesome. Uh, next question. Douglas Carmichael's back this time. He asks, what spectrum needs do wireless video systems like the Teradek Bolt have in comparison to wireless audio systems? Yeah, wireless video just needs a lot more bandwidth, right? You're sending a ton more ones and zeros to you know, ship an HD video stream, even with some amount of compression across a wireless link than you are to you know, send 20 to 20K audio. Next question. Mickey Makachor back from the Philippines with antenna diversity, ratio diversity, diversity, frequency diversity. What's the real true diversity? 
Yeah, this is depends on who you ask, right? Um, generally speaking, uh, like if I say true diversity, what I mean by that is that I've got an A antenna and a B antenna, and each one of those antennas has its own radio, and that radio is receiving an RF signal, doing some amount of decode on it, and then deciding which um, audio signal is better coming off of those two radios. Uh, some of these other systems. What they're doing generally to make them either more compact or maybe lower cost is they've got a single radio and then they're switching which antenna between your A and your B antenna goes to it. And there's different ways that you can switch between the antennas and there are pros and cons to that. But I think that's kind of your core difference is, you know, are you changing the antenna signal into a single radio or does each antenna get its own radio uh, so that you could, and wh where do you make the decision on which uh, signal path is higher quality at any given time? Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, I've always had a question. Is I'm not sure how it works. I'm not sure you know how it works inside the A20 Nexus. Does it have uh, where it can uh, receive eight or even 16 different transmitters inside that one small receiver? Mm -hmm. Does it have separate receivers for each antenna for each frequency, or is it frequency hopping between the different digital transmitters and multiplexing uh, the receivers across all of those transmitters? Yeah, yeah that's, that's a good question. It's something that I think, you know, at Sound Devices, we're having to do a little bit of education with people on because it is just a different receiver topology than folks are, are used to. We're doing it a little bit differently. Um, it's a 24 megahertz wide tuning band. So we, we're filtering that chunk of RF spectrum. But then at the point where we're down to 24 megahertz, we're actually digitizing that. And so there's an A to D converter that, you know, in a in other wire uh, in other digital wireless systems, your A to D converter may only be converting the 200 kilohertz or so of your single digital transmitter, right? We're digitizing 24 megahertz. And then that digital stream goes into a processor for us. It's an FPGA processor. And within that FPGA, we're able to do additional filtering and then decode of, of the, the signal within the FPGA. So it's, it's sort of like the transition from analog to digital audio, right? Like we're we're used to saying, oh yeah, I, I could totally digitize 20 to 20K worth of somebody's voice and then process that later in the digital realm, right? But we haven't typically talked about doing that with wireless microphone systems. And so that's really what we're doing now. So the answer is kind of both. Like we're, you know, we've got that front end and we're digitizing a large chunk of RF and then we're processing that in the, in the digital domain and there can be filtering in the digital domain and then decode that happens there of the digital signal. Does that make but sense? The so the transmitters are always stuck on whatever's frequency they're assigned to, and they're not frequency hopping while they're transmitting. Correct. Yeah, it's, it, that's correct. It's a fixed frequency transmitter, but all of your eight or even up to 16 transmitters for an A20 Nexus fall within that 24 meg tuning band so that the FPGA sees all of those signals and can process all of those signals. So it's just got parallel A to D converters going, uh, or D to A converters going on the on each of those channels within the, that spectrum. The A, to, the A to D has a 24 meg capture bandwidth, which is just a, a very different thing. It's more of a, what, something you'd see in a software-defined radio more than in a right. traditional wireless receiver. Next gotcha. question. Stefan Fischer back from Würzburg, Germany, and he says, is an IFB device by sound design in sight? Uh, if so, what features would this device have to make a difference? Yeah, That's I mean, we're... Sound Devices is always working on uh, new products. I mean, we get we get requests for uh, an IFB or in-ear monitor type system a lot. So, 
yeah, stay tuned. Let's see. Next question. Douglas Carmichael is up next. I've heard stories of RF coordinators at large events having to shut down rogue RF users like ENG camera people, for example. Would there be any wireless press box system to distribute one common feed to all users that could mitigate this issue? Uh, I, I think maybe. the Speaking from my experience as a frequency coordinator, um, generally, if you're going to a large event, you're probably getting credentialed for the event. And along with your credentials, there's almost always uh, some information about the frequency coordination requirements. So for any of these ENG crews, follow those instructions, reach out to the frequency coordinator, get frequencies assigned ahead of time so you don't run into to this problem. Uh, but then secondarily, like always have a wired mic and an XLR cable with you because if you do show up and you haven't followed these instructions, it is possible that they'll say, I'm sorry, you're not able to use wireless on this event because you didn't follow the frequency coordination requirements. Or if, if you think that Secret Service might show up, it's usually useful to have <laughs> right. wires. Right. Yeah. yeah. And people ask me about this, like, well, are, what are you going to do? How are you going to make me shut down? It's like, I don't, I don't really have to worry too much about that. Like, you're credentialed for this event. It's easy to get your credential pulled and get you taken off site to where I don't care what frequency you're using because you're not on my show site anymore. Yeah. And I think that that's what's, what's in, important there is that one of the things is if, you're, if it's the first time you've gone to a big event like Dreamforce or like, the, like a convention or, or something is to ask whoever you're working with at the, at the thing, who is the frequency coordinator? Because I think when we first started, I apologize in advance, when we would first did Dreamforce, if, if, you, if we were there at the same years, um, I didn't know who the frequency coordinator was. I didn't even know that there were frequencies were being coordinated. <laughs> so, and right. we were working for Salesforce. You know, so, so we were just kind of like going out and doing our thing, you know? And so, um, but, uh, so I think, you know, we learned to ask, you know, for... Yeah, for and that. I'll say most frequency coordinators are are generally pretty nice people and approachable, I, I would say. I mean, they, they're really there to make sure everybody's gear works reliably. And so... Yeah. Even times when I've been at events and found somebody who came in and wasn't aware of the requirement, I'll say, hey, you know, I've got my database right here on my laptop. What, fre what frequencies do you need? You know, what gear are you bringing in? If I can assign you a clean frequency, I'll do it. I'm, you know, I'm not trying to tell you you have to shut down. I'm trying to just give you a reliable frequency to operate on. Yeah. Next question. Douglas Carmichael has this one. In many European and Asian countries, digital TV and or radio stations often share a transmitter with their signals being multiplexed into one common stream. If that were introduced in North America, would it make RF coordination for production easier? I mean, possibly. Um, you know, spectral efficiency is something we think about for all these systems. But really, at the end of the day, it's about finding that open spectrum like we've talked about a couple of times. Like what what unused spectrum is out there for you to operate your wireless microphones in. And that's going to just depend on your specific geographic location. Gary, that was a very dense hour. <laughs> yeah, that's great <laughs> questions. Yeah, yeah, really. It was, I was so excited when, when you mentioned that, hey, I'd be, I'd be open to doing this. I was just like, oh, now we're, now we're talking. Uh, <laughs> you know, and I think we may, we may try to drag you on an, another time some, somewhere in the future. I hope you're open to sharing sure. out. Yeah, anytime. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, really, exceptionally really high signal to noise ratio. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Really, really great hour. Amazing. Uh, thank, thanks so much. And, and thanks to our uh, producers for all the great questions that kept us going. A lot of great questions that kept both the first hour and the second hour going. Uh, thanks to the panelists, of course. So we can't do this without you. And uh, thanks to the incredible team on the back end that, that comes together, the small village that comes together and makes all of this happen every single day, uh, seven days a week. I really appreciate all the effort that you put into it. All right. 
let's go ahead. Uh, one thing, 153,000 miles. We did a lot of miles today. We covering between all the question answers and askers, 153,000 miles, 247,000 kilometers, uh, 1.391 billion bananas for scale. And uh, so it was good. It was a good day. All right, let's go ahead and jump into after hours. Explorer, but I, it's kind of old. <laughs> I put a link in the uh, regular chat to the tiny essay. Yeah. I saved that link. There's a lot of me typing it. They're not gone yet. I'm shocked. <laughs> <laughs> What's the wavelength of a banana, though? 